every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. Uh, and talking with me tonight, uh, and apparently um, answering the door in the background. <laughs> oh, sure. no, did you hear that? I'm so sorry. I did. No, it's totally it's totally cool. Uh, so Mary Ellen Iotropoulos mm-hmm. uh, is joining me. She's the Director of Education and Experience for the Art Effect, which is a nonprofit arts and media education organization. Uh, she's a prolific contributor to the field of Whedon Studies. Her most recent publication is Joss Whedon and Race, Critical Essays uh, from McFarland. Um, and most importantly, for our purposes here, three-time winner of the Mr. Pointy Award for Best Work in Whedon Studies, uh, Mary Ellen, thank you so much for joining me. How's it going? Oh, uh, after an introduction like that, I'm having a wonderful day. You know, <laughs> it doesn't feel real until somebody like you says it, and then it feels real. The piece about the three-time winner of the Mr. Pointy Award. <laughs> I'm just going to bask in that for a moment. You should. You absolutely should. Um, I, to be honest, I'm surprised it's only three. <laughs> I've loved, <laughs> I've loved like everything that you've, uh, that I've heard you present, uh, all of your stuff that I've read. So, um, and I, I, I wish, I wish that your. So, I think it was the episode, the most recent episode that Nikki Stafford was on. We were talking about this past slayage. It's been so long since I've recorded one of these. I need to apologize to my audience right now. There's been a gap between episodes. I'm so sorry. There's this thing called real life that has kind of jumped on me. (laughs) Nobody warned me about it. So anyways, it's been a little while. I've forgotten how long ago Nikki Stafford was on, but we discussed the most recent slayage. And in that discussion, uh, we mentioned you, Mary Ellen, and I specifically cited um, your um, keynote speech on the final day of the conference, uh, which was called The Savior and the System, Interrogating the White Savior Complex in Joss Whedon's Work, um, which was one of my favorite papers of the entire thing. And I don't know how these things work. Maybe the keynote, maybe keynotes aren't up for the Mr. Pointy. I honestly don't remember how that works, but I, I personally wish that that had won the Mr. Pointy this year. Well, you know what? This might be a good arena in which to say this, that after winning the Mr. Pointy Award three times, I am officially removing my name from ever being in the running for Mr. Pointy ever again. And the reason for this is because I have had my time to shine. I would like a younger generation of scholars to be able to get the opportunity because it has been hugely foundational in my perception of my own abilities, uh, to have, you know, done the work, put in the hours, grinding away at trying to make each paper, each essay, each presentation the best they can be. 
and then to have it validated through the work of the Whedon Studies Association. It is one of the most meritocratic organizations I have ever seen. I want other people to be able to, you know, feel the power of that. So if anybody out there is listening, if I write anything ever again and you're even thinking of nominating <laughs> for something, don't. Just don't do it. Damn it. I was going to nominate everything. Um, <laughs> well, no, that's awesome. That's totally awesome. Um, so, um, yeah, let's – what What do we want to talk about before we get into the, the meat of the episode? Um, you, you and I just talked – a long time off mic, but and I had to sort of break it to you that, oh, by the way, we're not technically in the episode yet. <laughs> so um, I don't know if there's any of that stuff you want to try to recapture or if you just want to tell me how your life's going or what your thoughts on uh, Slayage 8 were. Or... Mm. Um, well, in terms of how life is going, uh, life is pretty good. As I started to mention to you, I am in the very beginning stages of starting up my own podcast. And it is called Supposedly Great, and each week I take a look at different pieces of pop culture property, which most people generally classify as great with a capital G, and I sort of break down the underlying assumptions and contexts around what constructs a thing to be seen as great, and then do a close reading of the things themselves and really pick apart which elements make it great, which elements work against it being great, who gets to make that call of when a thing is great or not? And to what end? For what purpose? What does it all mean? Oh, my God. This is – I'm jealous already. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to have you on as a guest sometime, and we can talk about something that you think is great. Please. Please. I uh, There are yes. a lot of things that I think are great, and probably half of them are things that other people think is are crap. So it <laughs> <laughs> should be an interesting conversation. Well, that's the – the point of the first episode is exactly that, that the word great can be used as a weapon, as in one person's consideration of what is great can be completely attacked by another person and used as the thing that makes them stupid. Mm -hmm. You know, um, one example that I talk about in the first episode is the band No Effects. I don't know if you're familiar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So some people would consider them to be the greatest punk band of all time. Some people would consider them to be terrible pop punk, you know, false punk for posers. Uh, and when I was in high school, this was really a battleground for me because I was on the fence about no effects. Like, I liked them okay. They weren't my favorite band. Um, I listened to them sometimes, but I didn't have any, you know, no effects t-shirts that I wore all the time. I didn't memorize the lyrics. But in some groups, even that kind of mild interest in no effects made me a poser which is a thing that gets thrown against you and hurts so much as a teenager. Uh -huh. In other groups who considered No Effects to be the greatest punk band of all time, my mild interest in No Effects, it was not liking them enough. So the fact that I didn't think they were great was what made me a poser. So really, it's like definitions of greatness and whether No Effects fit that definition or not and how I felt about that was the, the condition by which I was either welcome or not welcome among certain people. And that's always stayed with me. You know, it, it happens the same way with movies nowadays. Um, Star Wars, okay, The Last Jedi. Mm. I thought it was great. Yes. I loved it. I love it more and more every time I see it. I also had a very frustrating discussion with a coworker where 
I was talking to someone else about, oh my God, and it was so great, wasn't it great? And this coworker goes, I mean, it was enjoyable, but great? Would you really call it great? Really? Great? Is that the word you would use? Great. And we got into this whole discussion about what makes a film great, why a film is or isn't great. And it came out that this person had – no, I'm sorry. This discussion was not even The Last Jedi. It was The Force Awakens. So this is oh, okay. a few years back, um, which I thought The Force Awakens was great too, okay? Sue me. Um, <laughs> but this person had just seen Hateful Eight uh, in the, the – what is it? 70 millimeter, 70 millimeter. show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they wanted to talk about how great that was because it was a Tarantino flick and it was a limited edition roadshow experience and because it was released on Glorious 70 millimeter. And if that's great, well, you know, The Force Awakens was none of those things. So The Force Awakens couldn't possibly be great. Well, let me tell you something. I went and I watched Hateful Eight on Netflix and I thought it was terrible. <laughs> oh, no. Take that. I thought it was absolutely <laughs> awful. Oh, no. Okay? I'm well, mad about it. Full, I thought, full yeah. disclosure: I saw the 70 millimeter limited roadshow, and uh, I I loved it. But I'm certainly not going to get into a debate and defend it. <laughs> but uh, I I also thought that uh, see, I think I've, lots of things can be great. Just because you like Tarantino and think he's great doesn't mean things that aren't Tarantino aren't great. <laughs> so yeah, there's different barometers of greatness. There's also the idea that what is sometimes passed off as an objective set of aesthetic criteria for greatness is actually very subjective and situated within specific cultures and what those cultures uh, favor or value or disfavor and devalue. And I just don't think you can say something is great without taking those factors into consideration. I get into more uh, ill-advised debates with people. I try, try really hard not to, I really fight against it, but (laughs) I have gotten into more ill-advised debates with people over the annoying subject of objectivity versus subjectivity. Mm. Like the, just the notion of objective greatness drives me crazy. So good. Well then sounds like once it's done, this might be a podcast you want to check out. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So you've already recorded the first one. Um, I recorded the first one and I can hear already there's things that I want to re-record. You know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I really envy the way that other podcasters just have this tone of adamance, of certainty with everything that they say. And what I think of as speaking in a more thoughtful, considerate manner is coming off as a little wishy-washy. So I think I need to be bolder and more declarative and, you know, maybe a bit of a bitka <laughs> for getting down to it. <laughs> um, huh. But your, your initial question was, how am I doing? And <laughs> I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. <laughs> well, that's, that's great. Um, I guess typically I introduce new guests, uh, guests who have not been on the show before, I typically ask them sort of where, what their history with Buffy is. I probably should have opened with that. So let's play this a little uh, out of, out of time sequence and say, what was your first exposure to, like, when did you get into Buffy? Mm, So in 2007, I had strep throat and I was stuck at home all day, not able to leave the house. 
And my husband, then boyfriend, Dan, had a bunch of VHS tapes, and I was going through them trying to see what was on there that I could watch. Um, my backstory is that I had seen the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie when I was in middle school. And I, <laughs> oh man, Paul Rubens is so <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sometimes when I stub my toe, I pull a Paul Rubens from Buffy and I go like, nice. ooh, ah, ee, ah, ooh. Nice. Ooh, ah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so in my mind, that was what Buffy was. And when it was rebooted as a TV show, which sounds ludicrous to say now because so many people think of the TV show as the iconic definitive Buffy. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I was just not interested in it, so I didn't really pay attention to it. Um, the show went on and concluded, and I was not part of the wave of people who caught it on TV. I didn't see any Buffy until this day in 2007 when it was the last 20 minutes of the season two episode Killed by Death. The one with the Kinderstadt. Wow. Okay. And I watched it, and just those 20 minutes, it, it was starting with Willow and Buffy going into the doctor's uh, office and pulling a beaker of, or a vial of the fever serum out of the fridge. And Buffy's like, You can't stop me, Will. I'm going to drink this. And Willow's like, No, no, it'll kill you in an instant because you need to dilute it first. Um, and Buffy's like, Oh, yeah, good point. So they dilute it, and then Buffy <laughs> drinks it. And um, something about that exchange where the expectation that I had was that this gallant person was trying to do right and someone was trying to be the voice of reason and get him to nod. And really, it wasn't that she was trying to stop Buffy. It was that she had a little bit of scientific knowledge she needed to drop to make sure that Buffy didn't kill herself while she went about this gallant errand. And so that appealed to me immediately. Um, the intentional campiness of the Kinderstadt uh, makeup wise mm -hmm. appealed to me. Um, the some It's hard to put into words the experience that I felt, but chills went through me. It felt like this was a show that was made for me and that I was discovering it as though for the first time, as though no one had ever discovered it before. <laughs> like this was my private personal thing just laying here waiting for me to stumble upon it. And um, you know, I ripped through all the VHS cassettes that Dan had that had any recorded episode of Buffy on it. And when he got home from work that day, I said, I need you to drive me to Best Buy because we're going to be buying the box set. And um, I sat down and I watched the series cover to cover. If it was a book, I'd say cover to cover, but I'm not sure what the DVD equivalent of that is. First up to last up, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Oh, and it just spoke to me. And, you know, right around this time, I was in grad school and I was struggling with what happens to people who are English majors or who are in, in who are in English related degree programs where uh, I loved the literary theory that I was reading, but I was most interested in applying it to pop culture texts. And I was really feeling this discrepancy between the English department wanting me to, you know, be a uh, an engaged and engaging young scholar, you know, engrossed in literary pursuits and then providing me with source texts that I was just not very interested in reading or that I read for class and enjoyed discussing in class. But if I was sick at home, it's not what I would go for. 
you know, um, like Pilgrim's Progress, for example. Right. That's a thing that I would read because it's on the syllabus and, you know, it needs to be cited twice in my final paper for me to pass the course. <laughs> yeah. Not something that I read for entertainment value, but I thought what a beautiful thing to be able to take literary theory and close reading explication and apply it to pop culture texts that are things I read for entertainment value, things that really matter to me. That's the point, right? That's why you pick apart exactly how a sentence is working. It's to deepen the meaning that it holds for you. So why not do that with things that already hold meaning for you so you can feel that sense of enjoyment on a deeper human level? You know, it's really authentic to use what you learn in class to deepen your enjoyment of things you already love on a personal level. Anyway, but the particular place where I was, um, I had been trying to do that with uh, fairy tale and folklore and J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, God bless you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I will send you some of my work from that era if you're interested. Absolutely. Um, it was being uh, kind of tossed out as like, okay, so, you know, technically you applied the, the theory of deconstruction correctly, but this really isn't what we want to see being worked on by our graduate students. Uh, around that time, I learned about what the Southwest Texas Popular Culture Association Conference was. And I submitted a myth and fairy tale paper to one of the panels, and I got in, and I jumped up and down and squealed <laughs> excitement for a little while. Um, and then at the conference itself, you know, there were a multitude of myth and fairy tale panels, a multitude of panels concerning other pop culture artifacts. And then I saw in the program a bunch of Whedon Studies panels. And I thought, wait, what? Like this thing that I just discovered has a whole bunch of other people who care about it enough that they're reading it like it's a serious literary text and they're writing about it and they're deconstructing elements. And they're, um, that, that happened to coincide with one of the most random acts of kindness that has had the biggest impression on me, the biggest influence on the direction my life took. I was walking down the stairs with Dan saying something like, I am really nervous about presenting at this conference. What if somebody stands up and tells me I didn't do my research or that my argument is invalid? And the person walking down the stairs in front of me turned around and said, oh, don't you worry. We won't let anybody do that to you here. That's not the kind of scholars we are here. And I noticed that this person was wearing a T-shirt that said, and Buffy staked Edward the end. Mm -hmm. And it made me so happy. And I, you know, we, we kind of squeed over that for a little while. And that person invited me to come sit in the audience for the Whedon panel that they were going to. That person was Allison Buckman. Um, you know, so you you might want to uh, tell the listeners, who is Allison Buckman? Oh, uh, well, Allison Buckman, aside from just being a lovely human being, a wonderful person and a regular contributor to the scholarly works that WSA does. Um, she's currently serving, I believe, her second term as the secretary on the board, uh, the officer's board for the Whedon Studies Association. I'm not sure what position, if any, she had before that. She's also been the area chair for Whedon Studies, perhaps for sci-fi fantasy studies in general for the Southwest Texas Pop Culture Conference. Um, at any rate, though, the 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 moral of the story here being that she randomly heard me expressing anxiety and she without thinking turned around to relieve me of that anxiety and 
that's a great metaphor for what the, the WSA does in general, you know, takes those academic anxieties about feeling inadequate because the pop culture texts you want to study aren't considered real texts by certain facets of academia and saying like, to hell with that. Like we're, we're having fun with ourselves here and this is what it's all about. So why not? Yeah. I, um, talked about this a little bit uh with nikki stafford when we were discussing um slayage the slayage conference and the tribute that was being paid to the late great david lavery and um a lot of our comments a lot of the people who commented basically everybody who commented on david lavery uh including myself on that podcast remarked on how incredibly just open and uh embracing and friendly and inviting and comforting David Lavery is. And that, that pretty much applies to just about everybody that I know through the Wheaton Studies Association. So I've, I've commented before about what sort of what an outsider I feel like, especially at academic conferences like the Wheaton Studies Association. I love going. I, I love being at the Slayage Conference. I love listening to all you smart people, but I always feel like I should sit in the back of the room and mm-hmm. just sort of eavesdrop. Uh, but every conversation I've ever had with, with uh, any of you super intelligent, wonderful uh, Weedney people has always been um, just very comforting and and inviting and embracing. So, well, Paul, you also are super intelligent and wonderful. So, right back at you. <laughs> okay, I'll allow it. I'll allow it since you <laughs> warned me not to be self-deprecating on this episode. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, Don't make fun of my friend Paul. My friend Paul is amazing. Oh. Thank you. I would never say anything bad about Paul. He's a great guy. <laughs> okay, it's uh, it's probably time for me to uh, get to everybody's favorite part of the episode, which is the spoiler warning. Uh, mm. Conversations with Dead People is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and probably lots of them. So I recommend, if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once, that you press pause on this podcast and go do that right now. And assuming that... Um, all of our listeners have already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series, and nobody is rushing off to watch them right now. Um, with that business out of the way, Mary Ellen, if you're ready, let's go to work. Let's go to work. So uh, this time around, we're going to be talking about three episodes, uh, 309 The Wish, 310 Amends, and 311 Gingerbread. And so I'm going to throw it straight to you. Um, what are your thoughts on The Wish? Let's start with The Wish. Um well, first, I was thinking about how to discuss any threads that tie this particular streak of three episodes together. Uh-huh. And in light of the presentation I gave at Slayage, I want to talk about it through the lens of unintended consequences of actions that are made in earnest with the best of intentions in mind at the time. Um, these unintended consequences coming back to haunt the person who made them, who made the decisions. Does that make sense? Yes. Did I mess up that sentence? No, no, that, that worked. Oh. worked. Um, in each of these, uh, we kind of get a phrase I want to call visions of duality in that we see alternative universes or darker streaks or just different sides to characters who at this point we have come to know and love that complicate our feelings about them, but also complicate 
what it means to be a good person or a good Scooby or a good uh, slayer in the world of the show in ways that it's really important to unpack. Um, Part of what I was getting at in my presentation, The Savior in the System, is that when you do a good act as a good person, as someone trying to be one of the good guys, as one of the white hats, it is very tempting to believe that your work is done once that good act has been completed. But that is rarely the case because life doesn't stop after that one good act. And the more that you stop to congratulate yourself after that good act, uh, the more that you lose the perspective on how that good act if not properly paid attention to, can end up having really harmful consequences, sometimes consequences that undo the goodness of the act itself. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess if we think of these visions of duality as letting us explore unintended consequences, they do so in a safe manner. Because with each of these, things go back to normal, more or less, at the end of the episode. Right. Like in the wish, we are seeing the consequences of what might have felt understandable at the time when Willow and Xander, you know, started acting on their impulses. And, you know, uh, I was going to say something about it's a very mild impulse that they act on because they're just smooching. You know, this is a show about high school students. There's not anything too scandalous going on. But you know, earlier episodes where we see their feelings for each other start to develop and they start to steal kiss in the library. And it's very tempting to want to feel sympathy for their situation, maybe even ship them a little bit, as I'm sure people do more than a little bit. Um, what might have felt good in that moment, though, uh, certainly yields terrible consequences for Cordelia in The Wish even though it goes back to normal at the end, normal being a state where everybody is still alive and not vampires who get dusted. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, and then in amends, we see more of what angel was like when he was angelus and it, hmm, I'm going to say this, we see Buffy being confronted with, you know, the, the stark, undeniable truth of all of the horrendous, heinous, evil things that the person she loves did. You know, she has to really reckon with that duality, um, which I think the show does beautifully in that scene up on the hilltop. We'll get to that a little bit later. But the unintended consequences of that, I mean, this is the first time that we see the first evil in all of its... Uh, weird CGI, not so scary. Once you finally see what it looks like glory. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird kind of mutant bat looking thing or whatever. I don't even know what that was. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure for the time, this was what 1999, that was probably extremely technologically advanced. Um, So good for it. I I will say not to interrupt your flow, but on the subject of uh, the effects of the time, I will say this episode amends, uh, gives us one of the best sort of morphing special effects scenes that I think the show ever does in its entire run. And it's when, uh, 
Oh yeah, when, when Jenny fake... when Jenny kind of morphs into Daniel, um, I don't know the effect that was used just in that brief scene is so much better than virtually any other sort of CGI effect <laughs> that the show ever pulls off. So, and, and how nightmarish. And granted, I am going to trust that neither you nor I have ever done anything as bad as Angelus did. But can you imagine the faces of the people who you have wronged over the course of your life just present in your face, morphing from one to another, each one saying exactly the thing that they could say to mm-hmm. really hurt you and cause you the most amount of guilt? Whew. Yeah. That, that's rough. Yeah, broody angel gets can sometimes get a little be a little much um like there there are points even moving into his own series there are points where i as an avowed fan of angel i'm like come on man lighten up (laughs) like Mm -hmm. every once in a while i'm like this maudlin stuff is is dragging on a bit but uh episodes like amends really really give you a sense of what it's like on his side of the equation, like why he's as broody as he is. Well, you know, now I'm thinking it's interesting because in the wish we see an alternate version of Sunnydale, what it would look like without Buffy. If Buffy had never shown up, how things would have played out there. And in amends, uh, we see angel questioning the good that he has done and whether the good he does will ever be able to undo the evil he's done. You know, what's the line he says to Buffy when they're in the middle of their dramatic confessional, he says, am I a righteous man? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in gingerbread, we see Joyce, which this line is especially biting because it comes from a figure, a mother figure who is normally so supportive she questions whether Buffy is really doing any good mm-hmm. in Sunnydale. You know, are there any less vampires? So across this streak, I see um, the writers of the show playing with kind of these safe arenas where you can express how things could have gone or might have gone in a way that reaffirms for, you know, the characters within the the primary narrative of the show that, they're on the right track. Um, it's worth it's worth pointing out for anyone listening who doesn't know, which I'm, I'm not sure how big that uh, percentage would be. But uh, the three episodes we're talking about are written by three of the heavy hitters of the series. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so- the Wish is written by Marty Noxon, who I I personally have some issues with that we'll get into in later episodes. But there is no denying she is one of the heavy hitter. Uh, in terms of the writing room, the writer's room. Uh, Amends is Joss Whedon, obviously, need we say more. And then Gingerbread is written by the incomparable Jane Espenson. Yes, yes. And when we talk about Jane Espenson written episodes and the idea of alternate visions of reality in this fictional world, um, we have to mention David Kosiemba and his idea of the Espensode. Um, <laughs> which, you know, he his argument was that the idea of twinning or duality is something that Jane Espenson's episodes tend to focus on. Mm-hmm. I believe Jane Espenson was the one who wrote Doppelgangland later in season three. I believe is that, that correct? I, I will research that. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm going to IMDB dare myself to look up whether what I just said was true. <laughs> uh, let's see. Doppelgangland. Oh, no, written by Joss Whedon. 
No, but I believe she, during she this, wrote she wrote earshot. She wrote earshot. Um, she, along with <clears throat> excuse me, Doug Petrie, was one of the uh, executive story editors along this streak of episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can still see some Espenson influence in there. Um, and yet you you are right. These are three episodes that each of them pack a really powerful punch. Um, so maybe let's jump into them one at a time, shall we? <laughs> All right. Um, so The Wish, obviously, one of the big ones uh, in terms of it's it's just uh, it's a fantastic episode. It breaks from sort of the narrative tradition of the series so far um, in that where it's 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 the ob- the obligatory. Be careful what you wish for. Mm-hmm. Brave New World. It's a Wonderful Life kind of thing. Um, that every fantasy series has to do at some point, but uh, this series does it better than most. Um, it also introduces Emma Caulfield as Anyanka. Oh, I love her so much. And it brings Mark Metcalf back as the master, and that's never a bad thing. So, Never a bad thing. We'll get to the master, and his little uh, mass production is the the most demonic invention. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Speech in a little bit, but um, going back to the the vision of duality allowing us to see sides of these characters that we otherwise would not get to see. Um, Even before the wish itself is made in this parallel universe unfolds, uh, we see Xander and Willow wallowing and feeling really bad about themselves because of what they have done and how it's hurt Cordelia, how it has inadvertently led to Cordelia being uh, wounded and hospitalized and, um, the tension between we know and love Willow and Xander. We love Cordelia also, but we have at this point been conditioned to accept her as, uh, you know, the snarky, mean uh, voice at the fringe that is tangential to the core Scooby group where all of the heart is. Um, we find ourselves, at least I find myself, kind of hating Xander and Willow for what they've done and really feeling for Cordelia and the situation that she's in. Um, you know, the, Oh yeah. What were you going to say? I I was just going to say, I completely agree with you. And that's, uh, on a previous episode of this podcast, uh, it had been discussed the notion that Cordelia over the course of just these few seasons of Buffy really is forced to undergo, um, a lot of sort of penance, uh, like her path of redemption from being just the completely obnoxious mean girl in the first couple of episodes to being a full-blown member of the Scooby gang. Uh, like she suffers a lot actually, even beyond this, even moving into angel, the series, uh, Cordelia's path is never easy. (laughs) Like no, she, she suffers an awful lot for the sins of having been the mean girl in high school. Um, more so perhaps than any of the other characters. But um, so I I agree with you. It's fascinating that we've reached the point in the series only in the third season, we've reached the point where even for the briefest of moments, we're like, yeah, Willow and and Xander were totally wrong for the way they treated Cordy. (laughs) They were the bad guys in that situation. Uh, It is worth pointing out that um, this podcast is going to get pretty interesting uh, whenever the time comes for me to more fully discuss the character of Jonathan, 
because mm-hmm. because even in the scene where we're being made to feel sorry for Cordelia, um, there is a a piece of that scene that uses Jonathan as the butt of the joke to make us feel sorry for Cordelia. Yeah, where Cordelia is talking to Harmony about getting back into the dating game, getting back on that horse. Oh, I am ready to ride. And she says, oh, well, I have just the stallion. Yeah. And then poor little Jonathan is trotted out and he is not shown to be a stallion. Right. I just say, I bet Jonathan would have been so good to anybody who gave him the time of day. Right. Um, Oh, and Danny Strong, of course, is just uh, incredibly creative, talented, powerful figure in general. Uh, I like looking at him in these early episodes and just sort of thinking, oh, Danny Strong, I wonder if you had any idea what was in store for you. (laughs) Yeah. There's big things coming your way, kid. Um, But so speaking about Cordelia, um, I'm going to float you a theory that I've been working on for a while now. Um, It's a paper that is half finished, but it looks at Cordelia as the embodiment of the construction of white privilege in the Buffy and Angel verse in that, and this is maybe a contentious thing to say because Charisma Carpenter, the actress who plays Cordelia is herself Latina. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, looking at how one of the issues with white supremacy is the way that constructions of whiteness are not always affixed to actual ethnic reality you know, remember the one drop rule where it was thought that like, oh, if you even have a little bit of, you know, blood that isn't white, then that means you're all over tainted, you know, so the constructions of whiteness don't always correspond directly to what's happening in the real lives of the actors who are portraying people who are portrayed as white. Uh Um, Cordelia begins the series completely obnoxious, completely ensconced in privilege, has the world at her fingertips, is the one who decides who is in or who is out. She has the power to make people's lives miserable. And a lot of that power is contingent on her money and her status, you know, her standing as as Queen Bee. Um, yeah. We start to see her lose some of that status in this episode. And she continues to lose that status across season three as her father, who we never get to meet, um, gets discovered as being a tax evader and he goes to prison and she loses all of her money and all of her privilege. We get a more intimate glimpse of what her life without economic privilege is like in Angel, where she's lying to her friends about what she's up to. Meanwhile, she's stepping on cockroaches and her crappy little apartment um and as she grows to see more suffering of others through getting the visions in angel she starts to realize how faulty her former worldview was and she starts to want to atone for um i believe the phrase she uses this might be in the angel episode room with a view you know all that stuff i did just because i could get away with it is haunting me The phrase, all that stuff I did just because I could get away with it, you know, it makes me think of the phrase affluenza, Uh that guy who got away with, I forget, he he hit someone with his car, manslaughter, it was excused because he was too rich to ever have been given a moral compass. Uh, You know, what, what better illustration of privilege is there than somebody who has 
always had a buffer zone around them and has never had to deal with the consequences of their actions. Um, and, you know, as Cordelia gets the visions, she becomes more and more of what some fans call Saint Cordy, you know, yeah. really wanting to help the helpless and really trying to occupy that unprivileged place in society so that she will no longer be ignorant to all the suffering. You know, she never wants to go back to being the the queen bee of a high school clique where everybody has fancy cars. Like she knows more about the world now and doesn't want to go back there. However, uh, I will argue, and this is kind of going way off topic because this is getting to season three of Angel. Um, because she is not constantly keeping her privilege in check because as someone who is coded as white, she still has privilege in a society that affords luxuries and privileges to folks with white skin or who are seen as having white skin. Um, she doesn't keep that in check constantly. And in fact, she herself gets into a bit of a savior syndrome, uh, which leads her to be susceptible to entering into this agreement with Skip to take a demon part into her, uh, which ultimately leads to her being taken over by Jasmine. Um, and you know, that would be akin to putting herself up on the cross, maybe like, I'm going to take this demon element into me. I'm going to take one for the team because this is what I'm going to do so that I can continue to be the savior using my visions to help people. And ultimately that leads to her death. You know, the theory kind of starts to break down when we realize that this evil that ultimately takes over Cordy is itself embodied in a black woman, and what would that mean in the context of yeah, being the construction of white privilege? But um, leaving that question unsettled for now, going back to how we can see that play out in this episode, you know, one of the things that jars me in rewatching it, even after all of these times, is how right when I am really feeling for Cordelia, just as she really has my sympathies after being cheated on, after being hospitalized, after having to do physical healing, after being humiliated by her former friends uh once she makes the wish and she's in this alternate universe and she goes to find her car she has one of the most awkward exchanges maybe in all of the whedon verses do you, yeah. you remember what i'm talking about i do i do uh, where there's a custodian a janitorial professional and she he is one of the few visibly latino characters on the show period uh the fact that he only gets like two or three lines and maybe 10 seconds of screen time speaks to the overwhelming whiteness of the show but what cordelia says in this moment almost undoes the sympathies that i have just yeah. earned for her because she's like where's my car you know el caro el convertablo I mean, this, these are people living in Southern California. Right. I'm pretty sure everybody knows that the Spanish word for car is not el convertablo. But, <laughs> but also, that's not the point of that statement isn't a genuine query for information. It's Cordelia being snarky and cutting to make a point of expressing her dissatisfaction with the fact that her car is gone in the same way that in a season two episode – where she has Sven, her foreign exchange student, an Inca mummy girl. Right, yeah. You remember, she is mad at him because he's not fluent in English, and she's saying things like, you know, where where's my punch? You know, fruit drinky. Yeah. As though fruit drinky is 
a word that anybody would use in any language? Like, what language does she think he speaks where fruit drinky is more comprehensible than where's my punch? (laughs) She doesn't. Obviously not. That's a moment for her to just yell at him to make him feel bad for not speaking English. Um, Same thing with this moment where she says this to this janitor. Like, she's... She's, what is it, parking lot Pam? She's somebody who is expressing her displeasure. She wants to speak to the manager because things are not going her way, to use a 2018 example. Um, Yeah. And, again, it's a a blink-and-you-miss-it kind of moment, but it's normal for what Cordelia is, which if we don't stop and think critically about what that means – being rude to blue-collar workers is part of who Cordelia is at this moment. Being incredibly dismissive in a pretty racist way towards somebody who is Latino. I mean, he speaks perfect English, too. So the fact that she is trying to express her displeasure by insinuating that he doesn't have a full grasp of English speaks to the stereotypes that she, as a character, is holding on to and performing in that moment. Um and, you know, it again, it goes by very, very quickly. He's like, yep, you better go before the sun goes down. Uh, she has to walk. The plot moves on from there. <laughs> but there's a lot of little moments like that with Cordelia where any sympathy that we feel for her, the progress that she makes as a good human being moving forward, it's still tempered by these outbursts of just unpleasantness coming from her. It's going to be so I can't wait to get to Angel the series for any number of reasons, but specifically <laughs> right now, because um, as I've said on previous episodes of the podcast, I'm a different person on this rewatch than I have been on previous rewatches. So I, I'm I think I'm coming at stuff differently this time for the first time in a long time, maybe. And so my attitude about obviously my attitude about Xander has changed completely from maybe mm. my earlier attitudes about him. Uh, and the same thing for Cordelia, Cordelia, even when she, in angel, when she goes on to become, as you said, St. Cordy, um, Cordelia was like, never my favorite character. I never had a problem with her, but she was just never the character I tuned into the show for. And I feel like just as we're talking about her right now, I feel like moving into angel, I'm going to be, a little more sort of invested in her and really kind of following the progression of her character uh, more intimately, more closely than I have on previous watches. Yeah, please do. And as you do um, watch her as a metaphor for people of privilege, trying to work to undo their privilege, even as they still unwittingly, make very privileged comments. I mean, again, this goes back to what I was saying about the savior and the system and the idea that not only is it likely, but it is, you know, reality. It is a certainty that if you are a person of privilege, trying to work against privilege on one front, you have to look at the consequences of your actions on other fronts because there's going to be stuff going on there that stems from your action that you're going to miss if your focus is on good for me. I did that one good act. Yeah. I I don't think that this, uh, that either series ever really intentionally uh, like consciously 
pursued the notion of uh, dissecting its main character's privilege, certainly not sort of its racial privilege, their racial privilege or anything like that. But it's just interesting for me right now to think of terms like Angel is made to suffer over the, his entire story arc for, we're told over and over again, for these truly like incomprehensibly evil things that he did in his past. Um, that is what he's trying to redeem himself for. In many ways, Cordelia gets more on screen, like visible to us. Cordelia goes through more sort of on screen punishment and just nightmare than even Angel does uh, over the over the broad course of both shows. And her sin is that she was the obnoxious mean girl, the privileged, as you said, coded as white girl early on in the series that's kind of what she has to make amends for over the rest for the rest of her life on the show yeah 100 percent um there's another theory uh me and tammy burnett did some work on this in the past another whedon scholar uh looking at vampirism as the ultimate metaphor for white male privilege um because you never die you're always around (laughs) You have power to take life away from other people. You have all these institutions at your disposal. In the first episode of Angel, the vampire named Russell, you know, he kills a girl. And then Lindsay at Wolfram and Hart says that police and witnesses are going to say there was a dark complected man fleeing the scene. And that's that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, getting back to the wish. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're really ranging uh, far and wide here today, but I think that speaks to how much there is in a single episode of this show. Yeah, there's a lot to look at. Uh, but spe- okay, so back specifically to the wish. Um, what, did you have anything else you wanted to go into, or you want to talk about some Ooh. of the the interesting stuff that we get to see in the alternate reality? Yeah, why don't we jump right into the alternate reality? Because another thing that I really, I just want to talk about because I love it so much is the return of Mark Metcalf, like you said, the master, and his whole speech, which is so delightful. I love it so much about the humans with their plebeian minds stumbled upon this most demonic concept of mass production. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because again... Mass production is something that in, you know, the primary world that you and I inhabit is seen as one of the great feats of human achievement, right? Like this is how we are able to have cars affordable by middle class and lower class people as mass production brings down the prices. This is how a lot of human life was able to expand and proliferate because so many goods were being made so cheaply that people could have more and move into previously uninhabitable places and keep, you know, mass production has let humanity expand a lot. Right. To hear it being called explicitly a demonic concept is contrary to a standard American mythology narrative and also, I think, just really hilariously, painfully true. Yes. Yeah, because, well, I mean, because mass production, you know, it makes me think of in the sense that the master is using it for his factory. 
which also this is a recurring visual image across Whedonverse shows, isn't it? A woman's body on a table being penetrated by some kind of medical apparatus. Yep. I thought about I thought about that because so so my memories of that scene in the wish um I I remembered that it was the whole factory and mass production and all that stuff and so what I was remembering in my mind was that it was a much bigger production than this that the, that we were going to see like all sorts of people lined up and connected to hoses and all that stuff I had forgotten until re- I just rewatched this last night and I was like oh it's just one girl on a table mm-hmm. with all sorts of needles sticking into her and drawing her blood out. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ooh, and all for just a single, a single goblet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but I mean the parallel between um, factory farming and the meat industry, for mm-hmm. example, is apparent like there's industrialized cruelty bloody bloody cruelty happening all the time that we don't think of as such uh because it's part of this narrative of technological progress Uh right and in a certain sense it is there are probably people at this very moment right now millions of people enjoying delicious chicken mcnuggets and those chicken mcnuggets are arriving on their plates via factory setups where they do to chickens more or less what they're doing to the young woman in this episode. Actually, this episode was incredibly tame (laughs) for for what they would do in a factory situation like that. But yeah. Yeah. Um, Also, I I feel like I had a semi-intelligent thought to pursue here. The notion of um, the automation and, and mass production and factories, uh, how ultimately that leads to needing a blue collar workforce or like, you know, needing factory workers. Um, so in, yeah. even, even in the act of like progress and technology and, and automation or whatever, like factory production lines, you still need an underclass. You still need a, a, a working class of people to man the machines, I suppose. But this episode doesn't really go into that. Yeah, you're right. I'm thinking now about maybe the parallel would be that you need a ready store of people in a cage that you can bring out to be on the production line. But I guess that would be more the parallel for the poor chickens who are stuck in their cages. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you saying that makes me think of what we can make of the, like you just said, industrialization and the need for a blue-collar underclass and how Cordelia treats the only character that we see representative of a blue-collar underclass in this world. You know, that's a moment where even though we're feeling sympathetic for Cordy because she's been cheated on and hurt, uh, we might take it as a reminder that even good people contribute to systems that are designed to keep some people down while lifting others See now, what would it have? Would it have been more of a pointed metaphor? I don't even know if there's. Yeah, there's metaphor in this. Would it have been more <laughs> pointed? No pun intended. If oh, if hey. if uh, <laughs> if Cordelia had been the one that had been wheeled out on that table, instead mm-hmm. of being like, I love the shock value. I love. 
one of the great things about this episode is that it, um, unfortunately it sets up expectations for Joss Whedon that he jumps through hoops to, to return to over and over again in the future. And that is the notion of nobody is safe. I can kill off any damn character. <laughs> so I, I love the scene where, uh, Willow and vamp Willow and vamp Xander kill Cordelia. And we're just conditioned at this point in the show, we're conditioned to think, Oh, she'll, she'll get away, but she doesn't, she just dies on screen there. And two of our favorite characters, the ones who actually we had previously decided for the first time had wronged Cordelia, mm -hmm. uh, like gleefully kill her on camera. But, um, um, gleeful would be one word for it. I also might use the word sexy. Oh yeah. Erotically. Yeah. I mean, Xander was tugging Willow's <laughs> hair as they were sharing her. Yeah. 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 Oh, Vamp, Vamp well, Willow, the character of Vamp Willow is so, I wish we get, got more Vamp Willow, uh, because in an earlier episode and I cannot, I cannot remember what episode it was. It was the, um, it was the one with the love spell. Um, oh, lovers walk. Lovers, was it? Was it lovers? No, not not the love spell that, that Spike oh, um, was. Bewitched, bothered, and bewildered. Yes, that's it. Thank you. Um, when Willow was under the influence of that, and she was she was coming on to Xander, and he was like, "Don't make me use force or whatever." And all of a sudden, sweet innocent <laughs> yeah. Willow was like, "Really? Force would be okay." <laughs> There's so many little hints that we get in Willow, in sweet innocent Willow, that lead up to that you know find their end point in vamp willow yeah and that's part of also what i mean by visions of duality because we get to see this side of willow that is maybe a little more erotically charged a little bit more of a dominatrix and we know somewhere that that isn't our willow that this is a nightmarish you know parallel universe version of willow but also we see someone who looks an awful lot like our willow doing this and it expands our understanding of what our willow might be like in another world. It, also yeah. the nature of vampirism in this series is pretty fluid, which I've, I've mentioned before and I will mention again, ad nauseum, uh, sort of the, the rules of what a vampire is are kind of flexible depending on the needs of the plot. But one mm -hmm. thing that is explored, you know, this just popped into my mind uh, regarding your question of would it have been a more pointed metaphor if Cordy was the one on the table. Uh -huh. um, if I was going to, if I got this script and was asked to give notes on it, the note that I would give was for sake of closure to have the girl who ends up on the table in the, uh, you know, factory line be the other white hat who's working with Larry and Oz and Giles. Yeah. Nancy, um, but, I think her name was. Well, yeah, that's the thing, right? She's there. I think that's her first appearance on the show, and I don't think we ever see her again. I think I think I read that she pops up again in Earshot. I don't know what role she plays, but I think we see her again in Earshot. Oh, is she the one who is disgruntled because she's used, used to being the teacher's pet in English class, and Buffy is reading the teacher's thoughts and saying all the right things, and Nancy's like, I didn't know she did the reading. I, I genuinely don't remember. I don't know, but I just, uh, in my research, I'm pretty sure someone said that the only, I think what they said is the only time we ever see her again is in earshot. So, um, well, but you know, I, I am not here to say what I think that 
the creatives behind the show should have done, <laughs> but I'm just observing how things play out. Um, for sake of time, maybe the last thing that I just want to giggle over with you is the music at the very end of the episode uh, when the amulet has been destroyed in the parallel universe and things have gone back to more or less normal and everybody is alive again and is human again. You know, Cordelia's saying, I wish Buffy had never come to Sunnydale. And Anya's like, done. Cordelia's like, oh, that would be cool. And I wish this and I wish that. And Anya's sort of going, done. Done. What's what's wrong with me? Done. Yeah. Um, And then we get this uh, kind of circling shot of the Scoobies sitting there and everything's okay and they're in the sunshine. And the music is like... Yeah. It's like the cheesiest after-school special music ever. <laughs> it was so that was so weird like again not to question the creators but because I'm sure there was I'm sure that meant something like I'm sure that that scene played as sort of cheesy sitcom after school special as it did for a reason but I'm not sure what it was um well I would say the effect of it at the very least is maybe that we've just seen all of our beloved characters killed off in slow-mo in this alternate universe. And right. there's this very slow, mournful music behind it. And the first time I saw it, you know, I felt their deaths as if they were going to be permanent. I was like, no, angels turned to dust. What? So maybe they wanted to give us a moment where we could just dwell in the reminder that that wasn't real. They're still okay. Whew, big sigh of relief. Oh my gosh. And I, okay. You know, so here, here's my super dark cynical, um, read on maybe what that was. I, uh, as much as I love the series and I really do, I swear, I swear people, I swear, I promise. <laughs> I love the series. Mm-hmm. Um, I have never, ever really been able to let go of my frustration at some of the kind of hypocrisy and the double standards that the Scooby gang demonstrate, not only in these early teen years, but over the course of the entire series. Um, And that, uh, that kind of, that only grows more and more overt, at least in my opinion, as we continue through Buffy and then even into Angel. Mm -hmm. Um, And as both shows begin to add into the mix, the idea that, you know, some people can be saved uh, which to me at least raises the question of, you know, if one person can be saved, why can't all people be? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but my sort of cynical read of that kind of over the top cheesy music that plays in that scene uh, where every, where the, the three main Scoobies are laughing and having fun with each other while Giles very cliche wags his finger at them because they're late for class or whatever was going oh, on in that scene we can say giles ishley giles okay very good giles ishley waves <laughs> wags his finger at them my read is that um there there's kind of a lesson that we could take from the alternate reality it's the be careful what you wish for sort of thing and the whole there but for the grace of whatever bit, yeah. go i um so we would like to imagine that our characters, at least the ones that may have survived that horrible situation, would learn a valuable lesson from this. But no, we cut back to the real world, and our characters are still just goofy, 
obviously they're not goofy and carefree teenagers. This is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But in oh, the context but, of that scene, yeah. they're very goofy and carefree and they have not learned any valuable lessons from this uh, from this episode because no, they didn't. And they haven't been punished for the hurt that they caused. Cordelia, they're oblivious to how much she has been suffering even yeah. before the wish and the parallel universe entered into play. Yeah. Ooh, I like your super dark and cynical read on that. <laughs> That's I think just, that works really well. <laughs> uh, that's, that's what I do. That's what I do. Um, all right. Before we move on, I know we're just going to, we're going to run long guys. I'm sorry. Uh, but before, we, I'm not sorry. Before, <laughs> before we move on, I want to, I want to, it's not really nitpicky, but I think that these, these nits are fun to pick at. I want to ask some of the sort of logistical questions that are raised by this alternate reality. My first question would be, um, I'm going to, I'm going to call him Doppelmaster, the master in this alternate <laughs> reality. Um, how did he get free from underneath Sunnydale? Since in season one, the only way he could get free was with the blood of the Slayer. Ooh, good question. And well, um, if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but prior to, that particular piece of the how to get the master out of their puzzle uh, during maybe episode one, when Darla was just kind of fetching humans to bring back to the master to feed, wasn't it like if he could um, drink all the people that, or he was gaining power while the vampire named Luke was drinking people almost enough to punch out right there. I think you're right. That, so, I, that may be true. I may stand corrected. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I probably should have revisited and double checked my math before I raised that question, because yeah, as, as you're saying that I'm thinking maybe the blood of the slayer isn't what allowed him to escape. It was what allowed him to open the Hellmouth, maybe. Yeah. Or I'm trying to remember if it needed to be the blood of the slayer specifically or if it was just getting a certain amount of blood, but also, I mean, there are things that we can try to retroactively explain, but it would be more or less an exercise in speculation at best, because are they ever going to release an official statement right. about what was <laughs> yeah. going on? Yeah. I mean, ultimately the answer is it's an alternate reality created by, uh, on, on wish powers. So certain rules and logic, can be circumvented mm -hmm. that way. Like my next question would be, why was Cordelia even there? Because Cordelia would have died multiple times in season one of Buffy if yeah. Buffy hadn't been around. So, but again. Oh, you know what I am enjoying thinking about right now though? Hmm. In this uh, alternate Sunnydale where the master has risen and then Willow gets vampified Imagine the scenario where the master says to Willow, okay, so now you're going to turn a human. Who's the human you want to turn? And Willow is like, Xander. I yeah. want Xander. And all of the dark, nasty, sexy stuff that would be going on with that, <laughs> whereby Willow sets out a plot to get Xander, to vampify Xander, so she can finally have him because she doesn't care anymore about the possible morality of things, you right. know. right. Um, that's a great fanfic topic, wide open to be written on. Anyone I'm, listening. I'm sure people have written. <laughs> st 
stuff about that. I, I have no doubt that there is some very, very explicit fan fiction that deals with Vamp Willow out there in the world. Yeah, I bet you anything there's probably like cosplay gatherings. Oh, yeah. You know what, people? Go to town. Good for you. Life is short. <laughs> you do you. Yeah, do you do you. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's move on to amends, shall we? Which is the uh, the written and directed by Joss Whedon portion of tonight's uh, mm. fun. So wh- where do we stand on this? We've already said some stuff about it, but uh, let's dive deep here. And how do we feel about? I I had previously mentioned, I had described, um, what the hell was the previous episode? <laughs> the wish. I had previously wish, described yes. the wish as being sort of the. Uh, obligatory it's a wonderful life uh story that every fantasy series has to do but i guess technically amends is kind of the it's a wonderful life thing with the whole christmas miracle and all that stuff happening mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um well when i think about amends i think about a couple of things i mean in keeping with the themes we discussed before about the visions of duality and the seeing sides of characters in this trio of episodes that we haven't seen before. There is a lot that comes out in amends, um, which, you know, moves the plot forward and deepens our understanding of the characters. And in some ways really complicates our understanding of the characters um, in a way that, you know, I think the standard, it's a wonderful life uh, narrative is supposed to leave you feeling at the end of it like everything's good, everything's fine, we're going to keep moving forward and everything is going to go back to normal. Um, I'm starting to see amends as a turning point where everything's good and fine, but dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe this is just because I'm rewatching it for the upteenth time, but um, there are a lot of issues that are raised in amends that the Christmas miracle doesn't quite resolve. Um, even though it feels good and there's snow and we get to see Buffy and Angel holding hands and it's very romantic. And um, in some really, it just has to be said in some really, really deep miracle snow that's been, yeah. that's been falling for like five <laughs> minutes and it's already up to their knees. But anyways, mm. it's a miracle. I'm not going to, who am I? Yeah. yeah. Who am I to question the powers that be? Whatever. Um, like, for example, um, we see the we see parts of both Willow and Xander's lives that have been hinted at before that get a little more screen time in this episode than they ever have before um, in ways that make the questions very obvious factors that we now know are not being addressed in your regular, you know, run of the mill monster of the week episodes. Um, the big one to me, which, you know, first couple of times I watched it seemed very much tangential, but uh, I can't stop thinking about it now and what it means that this is tangential would be Xander's, uh, he calls it Christmas Eve camp out. Yeah. Um, and Cordelia, you know, very snarkily says, oh, I thought you stayed outside because of your drunken family Christmas fights. Uh, but, you know, we get these little snippets of what Xander's home like life must be like. Um, very rarely, it is never maybe until Restless at the end of season four on the main stage. But uh, it's troubling to me that we don't get to see more because it seems 
heavier than your typical throwaway line. I mean, so Xander, drunken family Christmas fights has parents who drink or a parent who drinks. Uh, we know this. We know going into season six in Hell's Bells that this is something that has deeply affected Xander as a person. But, you know, here it's not it doesn't take center stage. It's just sort of a, a random fact that makes for a visual gag of Xander getting snowed on by the miracle snow. Outside. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's usually a, a single line or whatever dropped in an episode. That's often meant to play for laughs, I guess. Yeah. And what do we do with the fact that, I mean, here is a, a teenager whose family is so dysfunctional that on this holiday that is shown for everyone else in Sunnydale as being the epitome of childlike joy and innocence, like he's by himself outside in the cold, literally, apparently. Oh, wait, and random side note about the cold. Um, People in this episode keep saying, oh, heat wave, oh, it's so hot. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was so nice and cool in Willie's bar. Why are they all wearing coats? <laughs> Why are they all wearing long sleeves? This is something that I never understand about Sunnydale fashion, that Buffy will be wearing a long sleeve shirt and long pants and like a trench coat yeah. over it while talking about how hot it is. I just don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so back, back to Xander, you know, we see him literally living through the, the consequences of this family dysfunction uh, and it's played as a gag as it has been before. But, you know, there was a lot of talk at Slayage, and I think you started to bring it up, too, about the more the show ages, the more our sympathy for Xander decreases over time. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the more that we see his relationship to Buffy as... Um, uh, I'm not sure what the right word is. The the more he seems to be um, petty or manipulative or whiny or kind of a jerk who's just hanging around because he hopes that eventually Buffy will be into him. Um, maybe not the best motivation for wanting to be part of the Scoobies. I think that these glimpses into his home life start to give us a more fleshed out sense of his character as to why he would be the way that he is. My, uh, my biggest ongoing problem with the series that manifests in, it, it comes out in many ways. And so I, I think sometimes people listening to me, which is why I stressed earlier that I really do like the show. I think, <laughs> I think anyone listening to me taking a random selection of my rants would be like, God, just stop watching the show. If the, if you don't like that, this character and you hate what they did here or whatever, what do you get out of it? But I think it all ties into this notion that the the series sets up, like it creates these lovable but flawed heroes in the Scooby gang or whatever, but it rarely takes the opportunity to uh, examine their, or we've already talked a lot about privilege. Like this, as a series, it doesn't focus an awful lot on examining what these characters flaws are or where, or like where these flaws come from. So for example, Xander, he, we get enough hints that he has a, a troubled family life. Um, and it certainly does play into larger events, as you said, with like hell's bells and all that. But, um, 
Xander has a lot of problematic behavior that we see. And if this show was more willing to sort of dive into Xander's family life and sort of his trauma that he's dealing with, maybe we would be a little more sympathetic for his, uh, you know, dickish behavior at times. Um, and like, likewise, uh, when I get so uncomfortable with our our main characters who started out the show being the the outsiders, the ones who were picked on, and gradually over the course of the series become the the uh, cool kids that pick on other people. I don't know. I feel like there is potential that the show missed for examining how the downtrodden become the. <laughs> how the oppressor yeah. oppressed become the oppressors or whatever that's overstating it a little bit but yeah. um, i like to think of it as the show trusting its viewers to be intelligent and analytical um maybe a little too much mm-hmm. but there the show always gives us some kind of moment where i think we can reflect on how those moments encapsulate characters insecurities and flaws in relation to um some of the things they're overcompensating for. Like, for example, with Xander, um, I was also really struck this time, I don't know why it never jumped out at me before, but when he and Buffy go to Willie's to try and get some information on what could be this thing, um, there's this whole comedic riff on Xander wanting to be intimidating, and then after saying something quasi-intimidating, checking, like, was that intimidating? I'm trying to be intimidating here. Mm-hmm. Um you know, give us a shot of information, pal. <laughs> I, I, you know, if he's coming from this place where he feels powerless and out of control because his family dynamic is so messed up, I can see why he would really want to be intimidating or really perform that intimidation in front of Buffy, trying to be the the one with power, maybe even like, you know, kind of a peacock thing, like, strutting around in front of Buffy, trying to be Mm -hmm. the one that gets the information out of him. Um, But, you know, the show doesn't have a moment where it says, like, wow, Xander, you should really think about what this means, (laughs) that you're doing this. We have to. We have to do the legwork of reading it that way. Yeah. Um, uh, You know, but either way, um, I thought it was very kind of Willie to make sure that Xander knew that he was coming <laughs> off as intimidating. Oh, Willie the Snitch is secretly a really good guy. <laughs> yeah, what must that guy's be, life be like off screen? <laughs> yeah, right. Where's the uh, Where's the four issue spinoff comic series about Willie the Snitch? God, as I say that aloud, it probably exists. It's probably out there. <laughs> oh, um, it probably is. And then going back to the, you know, getting glimpses of characters that otherwise are sidelined, marginalized, uh, just left out of the story. You know, Willow's whole thing about, hello, still Jewish over here. Hanukkah spirit, I believe that was. Yeah. Um, I was struck this time around, again, by the, the message that it sends to see all of Sunnydale putting so much time and effort into decorating the town for Christmas. You know, this is a very Christian centric town um, that, you know, in a way that religion is otherwise sometimes denounced or, you know, gently mocked in other ways. Still, Christmas seems to be something that 
everyone in Sunnydale celebrates. Main Street Sunnydale, every single store is just decked out. Um, the school, there's garlands hung up in the library. I mean, I I don't know what the public school situation is like in Southern California in, in the real world, but, you know, in New York, um, there has been a lot of legal precedent set so that Hanukkah gets equal representation in public places. Uh, and this might just be me being a Yankee and being <laughs> sensitive to these things. But, you know, like when I was in elementary school growing up in a suburb outside of New York City, if we in chorus sang a Christmas song, then we had to have a corresponding Hanukkah song that we sang. Uh, if there was a Christmas tree out front of City Hall, there also had to be a menorah outside of City Hall. And uh, it instilled in me an awareness that Christmas was not the only winter holiday and that Christianity was not the only religion. And the the iconography of Christmas just absolutely takes over the entire town in Sunnydale, which... Well, I don't know. It, I, I don't know what uh, sort of what year you were what years you were in high school I, I maybe you're a little I, I don't know I don't want to out your age on the podcast but maybe... oh you can out my age I'm 35 years old and I am proud of it I know that women are supposed to be horribly ashamed of getting old <laughs> but every year that I am on this earth I am like awesome <laughs> okay I can't believe I haven't died by now okay so okay. so <laughs> I guess so are you maybe a little bit younger than the show like so this was 1998 when the episode aired and was presumably set i'm older uh like i was i was 28 when this episode came out so my high school experience was from a previous era previous generation um i also had a much different life than any of these characters i didn't hang out at one high school for any period of time but uh yeah my experience with high school was much more um, or much less homogenous than what you're describing. And it could be an East coast, West coast thing. I don't know. But, um, when I was a kid in junior high and high school, I, there was very, very little discussion. Like Christmas was just Christmas. You had Santa Claus and Christmas trees and garlands and stuff like that. And paper snowflakes and that kind of stuff. There was very, very little discussion about, uh, diversity and, and, like, I think every once in a while you'd hear people talk about Kwanzaa, I think is the only other mm -hmm. thing I ever really heard people talk about. But um, growing up, I heard very, very little reference to Hanukkah or anything like that. Yeah, um, I think that your experience probably holds true for a lot of Americans uh, all over the country. And, you know, it speaks to the predominance of the narratives of Christianity that advocacy for even just equal representation of other religions is often met with, oh, it's a war on Christmas, you know, like, how come I can't say Merry Christmas to people? Why do I have to say Happy Holidays? It's like, you can say Merry Christmas. That's the point. Like, you can say Merry Christmas, and it will be interpreted as a universal gesture of greeting in a way where Happy Hanukkah will not. That just shows how there's a dominant religion and there are marginalized religions. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same is true with Sunnydale. You know, I, uh, I'm trying to think of if there is a time where 
Willow's Jewishness really takes the foreground in the way that Xander's dysfunctional home life takes the foreground elsewhere. And I am not really thinking of any. I th- the uh, I don't think it ever becomes like a driving plot point anywhere. And as I've repeated ad nauseum, my memories of my my detailed memories of the series uh, are not great. But I don't remember it ever being like a a driving plot point anywhere. I remember in, uh, I think season six, maybe we see her, or at some point we see her in a, in a cemetery and it must've been Buffy's grave where she's placing the stones on the headstone or whatever. And like she, she, we see her occasionally observing some sort of Jewish tradition, but, uh, I don't think like, like, uh, we frequently see her holding a cross to fight off vampires. Yeah. Which, if you want to get really nitpicky, shouldn't work, but whatever. I mean, that's another question, right? Like, what the show positing Christianity as the true religion in that you hold up a icon of Christianity and that is the elemental good that wards off elemental evil. Like, if you were to hold up a Star of David to a vampire, would anything happen there? And does that mean that within the world of the show, if the Star of David is not the good that wards off evil, that the show is saying that Christian thought is the correct way of thinking? (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. I mean, Joss was the angry atheist, and he he has said that um, the sort of the mythology of Christian iconography drives a lot of his storytelling and I get that because I am also very, very not religious. But when I'm drafting a story or whatever, I'm often drawn to, you know, I'm also uh, there are all sorts of things that I don't worship that I'm drawn to the iconography of when I'm coming up with a story. So on the one hand, I guess maybe it's just the sort of <sighs> there's an awful lot of discussion about the mythology and the iconography of Christianity in pop culture and so that's an easy draw for joss um and also it's just shorthand like i'm sure when they were putting a tv series on a a, like a a teen-centric television series on the air they were like it's got vampires well there have to be crosses (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i mean it's certainly a very culturally conspicuous set of tools to be working with so okay Okay, well, we'll forgive him that one. Speaking of marginalized and characters that uh, we get a little more of than we have recently, Faith is back finally. Uh, It feels like forever. I guess it's only been three episodes that that we haven't seen Faith, but it felt to me like it had been forever since we got any Faith. Long enough, in fact, that I had forgotten why all of a sudden she's not hanging out with anybody. I had to go back and, <laughs> and and remind myself that she's disillusioned with the whole Buffy was keeping Angel's secret thing and, and the fact that, uh, oh, God, what was her name? Uh, the, the Oh, Mrs. Post. Post, thank you. That Mrs. Gwendolyn Post. Post. Yeah, uh, that whole thing. Like, she's been put off by that whole thing, so she's... She's kind of wallowing on her own and is more, even more disillusioned than she was before. But yeah, you know, I also noticed this time around, um, going back to the idea of seeing bits of characters that we otherwise maybe don't see or aren't encouraged to see. 
Uh, Joyce, being the class act that she is, wants Buffy to invite Faith over for Christmas Eve so Faith doesn't have to spend it alone. When Buffy goes to invite Faith, and Faith, you know, very astutely is like, oh, so your mom made you invite mm-hmm. me? Mm-hmm. Buffy lies and yeah. is like, no. And then Faith lies right back to her. And we so far have seen Buffy positioned as the good slayer and Faith as the bad slayer. Um, or we at least see Buffy positioning herself that way. Um, but here, Buffy lies and Faith lies right back. They're really equals in terms of uh, their willingness to bend the truth, step around the truth, uh, not be completely forthright with each other. And that's interesting to me because that happens towards the beginning of the episode. And the episode, of course, ends with the real progress in Buffy and Angel's relationship coming when Buffy just lets it all out, you know, like really makes herself vulnerable and talks about how much she misses Angel and, you know, how she can't get along without him and like just really like, what is the word? And whatever pride she is hanging on to or whatever face she is trying to save with faith in that exchange, we see that pride go right out the window when it comes to trying to reach Angel in that moment on the mountaintop. <laughs> yeah. Um, some other stuff. I wonder uh, what you think about David Boreanaz and his Irish accent during the <laughs> flashback. <laughs> Well, that, I've I've said some words about the uh, the so-called Irish accents that the show pulls off, um, I've, <laughs> or I've, doesn't pull off, or, or doesn't pull off. <laughs> At this point, uh, it's just a running joke for me, and I think a lot of people like I I'm I'm not actively offended by the Irish accents, but they are kind of I, I've either learned to just ignore them and let them wash over me, or they're hilarious. And in this particular instance. I don't know. I felt like I was more distracted by uh, his facial hair, which a lot of pe- a lot of people think is ridiculous, and it is ridiculous. But at least it distracted from the accent. So I kind of I kind of liked Angelus with facial hair. Oh, while we're talking about hair, I would like to take a second to talk about Buffy's bangs in this episode. Oh, yes. Thank you. There was, there was, just, it felt like just one scene and I can't remember where it was, but there was one scene in particular where I was like, did she change her hair? I didn't notice it anywhere else in the episode, but in one scene I was like, what is this weird hairdo she's got? Yeah, where she has like these teeny feathery fringe of bangs that are maybe an inch long across the entire length of her forehead. And um, it, it's definitely in the scene where Angel is in a dream. He's Angelus. He's biting somebody. He looks up and he sees Buffy also in his dream. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it makes me think because there's uh, – I saw it. I noticed it. Then it goes into the credits, and I was like, huh, let's look at the evolution of Buffy's bangs across the seasons. <laughs> <laughs> and trying to think if there's any like deeper meaning or significance to you, pull from that. You think this is a, a mini revelations moment or wait, what is the restless restless? Thank you. Uh, you think this is a mini restless moment where they, they deliberately <laughs> dropped a clue to Buffy's changing hairstyle. So we're going to be able to track as she gets closer and closer to that moment. Well, maybe, um, 
maybe. I mean, also, like, you know, the cheese man, it's whatever meaning is there is something that we write into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of Buffy experimenting with different kinds of hair for just an episode or two. Like, you remember the first episode of this season, Anne, she has uh, bangs that the, are blonder than the rest of her yeah, hair. Yeah, the, the blonde streaks, yeah. Yeah, which I think are there to show that she's gone through some you're going to have to bleep that out. But, you know, like the <laughs> uh, the way that Rogue from X-Men has a white streak, you know, at the front of her head. Um, I remember in um, the Epitaph episodes of Dollhouse, Echo also having been through some stuff has streaks of or like a streak of white that she tucks behind her ear kind of thing. Uh-huh. That idea that once you go through something really traumatic, a piece of your hair turns white, and that's the visual symbol for what you've been through. I don't know if this is trying to play up against that, but um, we also see in those credits reminders that a long time ago, Buffy had kind of front pieces of hair that were not so much bangs, but they came down to cheek length, maybe mm-hmm. accentuating how she used to have, you know, kind of, younger chubbier cheeks right yeah. although i don't think sarah michelle geller could ever really be described as chubby in any way um no but she but, did, you know, she, she had kind of that baby face look in the early in the first season yeah so maybe we can consider the evolution of her hair to be along the same lines as the evolution of her character and in this season she keeps trying different stuff out because she's not really sure who she is or what's going on with her anymore um, I would like to ask you if you would keep an eye on this as you progress through the series and continue to do these podcasts, like just check in on her bangs every now and again, will you? <laughs> okay. All right. Sure. We'll do the Buffy bang watch. <laughs> that sounds terrible. I'll call that something else. That, <laughs> that could have an entirely different meaning. <laughs> I did not even realize that until you said that. Oh, that's marvelous. Yes, Buffy Bang Watch sounds like something very different. Yeah. Although, okay, that's a great segue. Speaking of Buffy Bang Watch, um, something else I noticed was uh, it, it jumped out at me specifically during the dream sequence lovemaking scene in this episode. Um, mm-hmm. Going back to a presentation I saw at Slayage, Dr. Matthew Pateman did a presentation on the importance of editing in TV and the uh, kind of paradox of how we, when talking about who has creative control in TV shows, talk about the writer, talk about the showrunner, very rarely do we put attention on the editor in the same way that the film industry and the Academy Awards and such put emphasis on the editor's role in that process. Uh, But in the television world, editing becomes much quicker. There's a lot more fast turnaround. So you could argue that editing is more integral to the creative turnover process in television than it might be in film. Um, I mean, I'm not going to try to make that argument, but it did leave me wanting to inspect the role of editing more. So I noticed this time around that in this episode, we get a lot of uh, half opacity image overlay. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically in the the sex dream that the two of them share, which is maybe even more like intimate and sensual than 
any the the sex scene that they actually had back in season two. Oh yeah, no, I I had thought that as I was watching it, I was like, wow, this is a little more, this this is a little sexier than the actual sex that they had. <laughs> <laughs> which well, think... which it's a it's it's a it's a dream sequence, so that makes sense, I guess. Uh, I think there's something to be looked at more deeply with how the editing impacts us as audiences in that way. You know, this overlay of images, you'll see a shoulder and you will also at the same time see some other bit of skin, haunches or something moving against sheets. The It's like this overload of you, you can't quite tell where one image starts and another image begins. It creates this feeling of being just overwhelmed amidst the what's happening um yeah trying to think of better words to describe it but the the interesting thing is that the other times in this episode where that same editing technique is applied is in the introduction of the first or at least of the bringers underground um you know we are we are above the ground uh, with Buffy and her mom in the Christmas tree lot, and then the camera jumps underground, and that's immediately followed by another sequence of these half-opacity image overlays of the bringer's faces and a torch and a table with these weird kind of dominoes that have something to do with evil that they're playing. <laughs> evil dominoes. So, evil dominoes. And, you know, again, the... Uh, the montage of images laid over each other create this kind of unending swirl that just aesthetically feels different and distinct from the regular narrative of the the rest of the show. I think it's an intentional editing choice, and I, having seen Matt Bateman's presentation, thought like, wow, I wonder if this was an editor using the specific technique or if this was a creative decision handed down to an editor, but either way, I think it is really effective the way that it's used. I would, s I am not a professional editor, so I don't, I'm make, completely making this up, but I would imagine me personally, I would think that the sort of the dreamy sex scene well, first of all, a, a total cynic would say, oh, that's just a TV editor's way of getting all of the footage in. They only have a, <laughs> they have a very limited amount of time to use all this footage. And so they just overlay all the footage in one scene. Uh, I don't think that's it at all. I, I would say that like the, the dreamy sex scene, uh, it was meant, you used the word overwhelming. I think that is probably what's going on there. That is meant to be um, an emotionally overwhelming thing for the characters experiencing that dream and so for us as an audience it's also supposed to be kind of overwhelming it's the it demonstrates the power that this relationship has between these two characters and the danger inherent in it so it's very dreamlike and overpowering and overwhelming or whatever and then with the the bringers uh it's also the dreamlike quality but it's more of a nightmare you can't understand really what's going on you uh yeah, so I mean, that's just kind of how I would look at those two different uses of that same technique. But yeah, I love that reading. Um, awesome. And uh, then speaking... we can. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say we can contrast that with uh, Willow's wonderfully awkward attempt at seduction, where it's almost 
painfully linear. Uh-huh, you know, yeah. she says something and there's a pause and then she says something else and there's a pause and then all of a sudden she's saying things awkwardly because the awkward pauses are too much and it's almost like we kind of wish that we could jump into one of these, you know, overlay montages to alleviate the awkwardness of what yeah. is Oz going to say? What am I going to say next? That's um, a, that is a great catch. It didn't, I didn't consciously pick up on the fact that we had had a very dreamlike, overwhelming sex scene. And here we have a very, very awkward man. Could they just blur the, the scene a little bit for us? <laughs> um, attempted seduction. So yeah, that's great. That's, awesome contrast between those two oh and poor willow i mean it also makes me think of how far she goes oh yeah from like we could do that thing right to like the the look in her eyes during tara's song i'm under your spell (laughs) yeah that that song is that song is something else (laughs) oh man yes it is oh and also um you had said earlier about how technologically ahead of its time the face morph uh-huh, right. is, and uh, it jumped out at me. I completely agree. Good catch on that. Which is a shame that it's followed almost immediately by the giant mutant bat thing that the first turns into, <laughs> which was not a good effect. But anyways, just something, I don't know if it was just the framing of that scene where Jenny morphs into Daniel, but I, I, I was genuinely impressed with that effect. Um, so before we move on, we need to talk a little bit about the first, because <clears throat> if you're watching the show for the first time, uh, the the first evil might seem like a kind of throwaway villain. It's a pretty big concept, the notion of the very first evil that predate, predates humanity and demon kind and has just always existed. I mean, that's kind of a heady concept for the show to throw mm-hmm. in here as just a simple monster of the week kind of thing. Um. So in terms of just this standalone episode, Amends, it's, I don't remember what my response to it was on first viewing. I don't know if you do, but it feels a little bit underwhelming. Hmm, I'm trying to remember how I felt about it the first time that I saw it. I think that, yeah, it didn't register with me what it would be revealed to be later on. Yeah. Um, the, well, I mean, for me, the, the emotional pull of just seeing Robia Lamort again and Jenny Callender, that in itself, it could have been any evil entity doing that. And I would have felt the pain of seeing her again, being tortured by her and by all the demons from his past, you know, but now I'm thinking, do we ever get a satisfactory alternate explanation to how angel comes back there. So I, I was, I wanted to talk about this a little bit. Um, again, this is a spoiler podcast. So I'm, we're about to spoil the fact that the first comes back. You'll see the first again, much later down <gasps> the line. Dun, dun, dun. But um, <laughs> this episode kind of sets, uh, it sets up stuff that we're going to, that is going to be revealed in season seven of this show. And also in just an ongoing sense in angel, the series, Um, even though this episode doesn't actually name, doesn't use the phrase, the powers that be the powers that be capitalized is a concept uh, in angel, the series that becomes a pretty big deal. And so my, 
my retcon of this, I don't know if they ever, if the show ever goes back and explains what this episode is supposed to be. Like, why is the first doing what it's doing in this episode or whatever? But mm. my read on it would be that the powers that be have a plan for Angel and the first is trying to take him off the board because the first knows that a vampire with a soul is going to play a significant part in the coming conflict. And so mm -hmm. the, the powers that be are the ones that bring angel back. And the first is showing up now because it's trying to keep him from becoming an agent of the powers that be. It wants to either turn him back into Angelus or as Jenny says, that wasn't the plan, but it'll work when he says he's going to go kill himself. Yeah, I agree. That's a good reading on it. Or maybe even they're hoping that he will drink from Buffy and turn Buffy, and then they will have two power players yeah. for the forces of evil. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, again, I don't remember if the show ever tries... Like the, the when the first comes back, I don't know if they ever explain. Well, why did you show up in season three? <laughs> like, what was that all about? But, um, anyways, in just this particular this single episode, as an overarching villain, the first was a little bit underwhelming. I have different feelings on season seven, uh, so I don't know what my thoughts on the first as a larger ongoing big bad are. But we'll find out when I get to season seven, I guess. Yeah, for me, the most unbelievable part of it is that the first would just disappear for four years. Right. Um, but, you know, with hindsight is twenty twenty, right? I mean, Miracle Snow. Come on. <laughs> That's scary. That's scary. Mm. Um, uh... It truly is. I mean, I, as I was watching it, I just kept thinking, I really hope nobody, like, lights a match or something because that whole snow set is going to go up in flames <laughs> it is so obviously yeah. cotton or yeah. yeah 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 fiberglass or something so uh, okay so some other thoughts um i absolutely adore library research montages mm -hmm. um i noticed in this one that they go from uh, again, with the image overlay editing technique, shots of all of the Scoobies in the library looking at books to suddenly there's a shot of Giles at a whiteboard emphatically pointing at something and explaining something. And I'm just like, I want to see what he put on that whiteboard. Like, did he draw a chart? You know, like, <laughs> I wish we could be flies on the wall for what might actually Giles is explaining in those moments, you know, and then there's pizza and then there's more pizza. And there is something that is so satisfying to the, the nerdier fans among us to see this. I mean, honestly, my thought is that sounds like a pretty fun weekend. You know, you have a, yeah. a mission, you're trying to find some answers to a question. You hang out with your friends, you go through a bunch of books. Yeah. <sighs> Nerdy stuff. Good times. Oh, the good old days. So. Um, okay, so I have two other thoughts before we leave this episode, um, and that gets to the, I referred to it before as the moment on the mountaintop, um, right. when there's this showdown and this confessional confrontation between Buffy and Angel, and 
two things really jumped out to me about this. Um, one, I think, is more self-explanatory, where they're talking about sort of big picture, what is the point of fighting the way that we do? And Buffy says, uh, it's hard and it's painful and it's every day. And it is one of those, you know, kernels of ideology that go on to be expanded in the show Angel to become, if nothing we do matters, then all that matters is what we do. Which I, and, have, which I have tattooed on my arm. Yeah, you do. It's such a great phrase. Oh, my God. I feel a little silly, but the older I get, the more I really jump onto that phrase for strength in just getting through the next day whenever I have a hard day. You know, like I will be more discreet than I was earlier when we weren't quite on the record, but my work situation, you know, sometimes it feels like the big decisions that are being made are no longer in my control. So what is even the point anymore? And the point is that there is a student in front of me who needs help with something and I can help them or I cannot help them. And the choice to help them put something into the world that wasn't there before. And even if I never have decision-making power in a bigger sense, like that is a thing that I have done. Yeah. And that makes it worthwhile. Um, so it's interesting that Joss Whedon was the one who wrote this episode because I think he also was the one who wrote that episode in Angel Season 2, right? That was the one called Epiphany. Um, I, can't, I can't remember if he wrote the uh Tim Minear is usually credited with the line, if nothing we do matters, all that matters is what we do. Um, but I think I've recently seen him say that he's pretty sure Joss actually wrote that line and he's just taken credit for it. So I don't know. I don't know who is actually responsible, but. Well, it feels to me like it is, you know, coming out of uh, one creative vision, like one person's sort of wanting there to be an underlying like moral refrain that mm -hmm. the characters keep returning to um, whether it was actually written by Joss Whedon or whether it was kind of massaged into being under someone else's pen, but under Whedon's guidance that I guess I can't say for sure right now, but, but, but I am going to look it up on IMDb right now. The <laughs> episode epiphany was yep, written by Tim Minear. Okay. So, um, yeah, underlying point with that uh, little comment is just that, you know, it is hard and it is painful and it's every day. And it is also jumped out at me because of how we were talking earlier about what it means to do good and continue to do good and how you can't stop after a single good act and think, all right, wipe my hands clean. I did the good thing. I am a good person from here on out. I don't have to do anything else anymore. You know, that you have to do something every day. You can't just pat yourself on the back and say, my battle is done. You know, the battle keeps going. It is hard and it is painful and it is every single day. Another major, major theme running through the entire series of Angel. Yeah. Um, so then the maybe last thing that I... I wonder what you think about is part of this extremely heartfelt and romantic with a capital R or with a lowercase R um, 
exchange that Buffy and Angel have is physical violence. They come to blows, Mm -hmm. you know, they punch each other in the face. And this jumps out at me because number one, um, I guess both being super powered, uh, the physical violence isn't a deal breaker in the same way it would be in the case of domestic violence of the kind that Xander's family might be facing. Uh, It's interesting how the being super powered kind of changes audience perception of that. You know, I wonder how much when someone else watches this, they're put off by the fact that during these confessions of love for each other, they punch each other in the face a couple times. Um, yeah, that's a good question since, uh, there is another, uh, Buffy has another romance in her future with, uh, a man that she also shares a violent history with. Um, and that particular, why am I being so sneaky about this? So when she and Spike end up becoming a thing, a lot of people who are not fans of that relationship point to the fact that it's predicated so much on violence. Like it's not a real there's no real romance involved in that relationship because all they do is beat the crap out of each other. Um, and that's, I mean, you see a little bit of that here with her and angel. It's just the heightened reality of this show has these two characters as being very violent, uh, very physically powerful creatures. And so when feeling, you know, when feelings just like how in a musical, people burst into song when feelings are too much to be contained by normal human uh, limits. Um, Here, when the emotion gets to be too much, these two super powerful beings express their emotions physically. So it also makes me think of how I think it's on angel or maybe it is in the series Buffy, but getting into season four, the part where Faith comes out of the coma and is back and goes to Angel and Buffy is close on her heels and Buffy shows up in Angel's apartment and Faith is there. Uh, Buffy and Angel get into a bit of an argument and then Buffy punches Angel and Angel punches Buffy back and in that show, in that moment, the camera lingers on Buffy kind of holding her chin with yeah. this look of shock on her face. Like, oh, how could you do that to me? I, th- and- I-, I think she actually says, you hit me. And he says, you hit me first. Yeah. I, th- I think that's the actual line in that scene. So, um, whenever I see that, I think back to this moment where it's like, uh, you know, I, I wonder... Oh, well, this is a very contentious thing to say, I suppose. But in that moment that Buffy is trying to play the role of victim more than she actually feels because she's been in the situation before where she and Angel punch each other. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not as though it's shocking that he hit her because it's the first time. Right. Yeah. Um, although she is acting as though it is the first time. But as soon as I say that, to what end am I saying that? Am I saying, therefore, Buffy should not be upset that Angel hits her? Like, no, that sounds terrible. That sounds like I'm saying she's asking for it and she's not asking for it. So um, maybe we'll just leave it as uh, these two crazy kids have some problems to work out. <laughs> yes, they do. In their yeah. relationship. Yeah. 
And finally, I had forgotten that this is one of the few episodes with a variation on the Gur-Arg monster during the end credits. That's right. Where the Gur-Arg monster has a little Santa hat on. It's the little Santa hat and the sleigh bells or whatever. Yeah, very cute. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. man, this is, we are running long. I try to keep these episodes to around 90 minutes. This is, I apologize. This episode is not going to be 90 minutes, but I don't care because this is the sort of just deep conversation I've always wanted to have on this podcast. <laughs> so we've got one more episode to cover. Uh, before we move into that, I just want to quote this line from the end of amends because it's one of my favorite lines. And I think Joss has said it's one of his favorite lines as well. When angels like, it's not the demon in me that needs killing. It's the man. I don't know why Joss holds that up as one of his favorite lines, but for me, it's just one more example of the show blurring the lines between humanity and and de- demonity, whatever, whatever, de- <laughs> demonism or whatever. I, I love any opportunity that this show, and particularly Angel the Series, which does it much more often, any opportunity it takes to, for even a single viewer, raise the question of, uh, you know, what what makes demons evil and humans good or whatever. So that's why I, I like that line. Also, this is some of... Um, David Boreanaz is not the finest Shakespearean quality actor on the series, <laughs> uh, but every once in a while, like he manages to like get down, dig down into the emotions of his character. And this is one of those moments where I, I liked his performance. So, yeah, I completely agree. I also enjoy the flashbacks to him being a drunken whoring layabout, I think mm-hmm. is the phrase. Yeah. Um, I mean, it to me is a case of when you don't know how high the stakes are, you don't know how valuable a choice you are making every single day in terms of what you choose to do with yourself and your time. And that goes back to the, the thing about the fight being hard and painful and every day and not something that can ever be definitively won. Um, the important thing is that you choose to keep fighting rather than, you know, visiting your, your local brothel for a good mug of meat or whatever. Sometimes I feel like the flashback scenes are anachronistic in that they are supposed to be in 1838, but there's m- much more of like a... like pre-industrialized medieval look about some of the sets yeah looks like a looks like the town of brie from fellowship of the ring or whatever yes yes that's exactly yeah um (laughs) to which i would just say there's plenty of um people with uh degrees in history in hollywood like give someone a job get them to help you keep your the historicity of your set accurate and while you're at it get david borean as an accent coach that's it thank you for coming to my ted talk everybody (laughs) um all right well let's move into i don't believe there are any dueling accents in gingerbread so we're we're spared that but uh let's let's get into yeah let's get into can we take a moment to appreciate how even though she's under the influence of magic or mysticism of some kind, Joyce is an incredibly efficient activist. Uh, 
Like I, in watching it this time, I'm like, wow, she knows how to organize. Like she has a thought. She wants to put it into motion. She wants some kind of change. She starts gathering people together. She even gets the mayor there to this town hall style meeting. And then it's, it's a moment of conflict for me because I am so right with Joyce up until, you know, well, she, I, I'm right with her as she's saying the things about how many of us have lost someone who just disappeared or had neck rupture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and her silence is this town's disease thing. You know, I'm standing up and cheering for her. I'm like, yeah, Joyce, speak truth to power until she says the line about this town doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the monsters and witches and slayers. And we get this shot of Buffy's reaction where she is just devastated to have heard that. And that's when you start to realize, oh, there's something going on here, maybe more than meets the eye. See, for me, the troubling line that she delivered in that whole thing was, those books have no place in a public school library. Any student could waltz in there and get all sorts of ideas. <laughs> yeah, that also is troubling. Um, yeah, I... Hmm. Well, you know, that in watching it this time around, it made me think of a conflict that I feel as an educator sometimes with regards to censorship. Uh, you know, a personal anecdote, this past summer I taught a smartphone summer camp, which was a lot of fun and also had a lot of challenging moments that kind of relate to this one where we were trying to get students to use their phones for creative and critical purposes. Um, you know, there is a, uh, a study that was conducted by Common Sense Media that showed that even though preteens and teenagers can spend up to nine hours a day using their phones, only 3% of that time is used for creative endeavors. Most of it is passively absorbing media or scrolling through social media. Mm -hmm. um, so we were trying to meet students where they are at and ask them about their favorite YouTube channels, get them to ruminate, you know, on why is this meaningful to me and what makes this YouTuber that specific style of YouTuber, like what compositional elements are they using that defines them in terms of aesthetics. And um, they were very happy to show us their favorite YouTubers until it became very obvious, maybe two or three presentations in, that their favorite YouTubers have the foulest potty mouths that maybe I have ever heard and are doing things that if I was them, I would think were hilarious. If I was just me, I might think were hilarious. Me as an educator and a responsible adult trying to lead them through critical thinking about media, <laughs> I was appalled. I mean, things like, you know, Oh, there was this thing called the jelly bean challenge where you had to buy enough jelly beans to fill a bathtub and then you had to swim in your bathtub of jelly beans. And, you know, it it was very funny and they loved it and it was irreverent and absurd. And I also kept thinking like, oh, my God, how much money did you just waste on these jelly beans? What? <laughs> um, or there was a uh, a YouTube channel that a student was really into that was all fake violence followed by fake gore. Uh -huh. And I understand why they were into it. And if I was them, I would maybe think it was really fun and cool and edgy also. But 
I had a moment of responsible adultness where I was like, ugh, I can't believe they allow this stuff on the internet. You know, and I, oh, when I was man. watching this, being, I a, like, being a grown up sucks. I know. Cause you know, there's this moment where Schneider is like, okay, sure. I'll hear you out. You know, what exactly does blood rights and sacrifice have to offer your average teenager? And right. I thought, Ooh, yeah. If I had that in my library and one of my teenagers, parents came in and questioned it, then I would probably, you know, cringe a little and Ooh, yeah, that is kind of inappropriate for a school library. But you know, on, on the other side of things, like censorship is wrong. It just is. Right. Yeah. What I is mean, it this, about? Oh. The, I, w- I was just going to say this episode actually builds to a place of actual book burning. And now they, they, they combine the whole book burning with witch burning, <laughs> but <laughs> still it leads up to piles of books being, being burned, which is a, a really, really uncomfortable thing for me to watch. Other yeah. people might be like, yeah, that witch burning thing is terrible. I'm like, yeah, the book burning thing is awful. <laughs> well, because if the reality of the world of the show is that the books got burned before the fire caught to the people, you know, the with the witch burning, it ended up okay. They stopped it in time. With the book burning, like, there's a bunch of books that did not make it through that fire, and that's sad. Yeah, this is kind of like the library being destroyed three or four times over the course of the series. And when we come back, the library has just been rebuilt and all the books have been replaced. Technically, how many of those books in those burning piles were the the irreplaceable tomes that Giles has kept (laughs) locked up in the (laughs) library? And uh, now they don't have those to go to in the future. But, But, you know, my underlying point, talking about my own experience with students being that um, there is this element of adulthood where you wonder, is this too much? Should I pretend that this doesn't exist for sake of keeping the kids innocent or protected from whatever? And that no matter what kind of good impulse that thinking is rooted in, ultimately the bad stuff is out there anyway. And chances are that the people you're trying to protect are already exposed to it and maybe suffering under it. You know, like if I forbid a student to talk about a YouTube channel that has a lot of cursing and slapstick violence because it's, you know, uncritical of itself, uh, they're still going to go home and have access to it anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, so pretending that it doesn't exist or that me forbidding it in a classroom can somehow mean they never interact with that stuff. That's just wishful thinking. Like, that's just arrogance, even. Um to put it back into perspective of Buffy, like if if Moo really wants to protect from a world where a book called Blood Rights and Sacrifices will come in handy sometimes, like an organization like Moo should be fighting evil with the Slayer instead of trying to pretend that getting it out of the library means that the Slayer won't need that book anymore. Yeah. But you know, in another weird way, before the kind of the reveal that Joyce is under a spell um, there are other moments where the whole Slayer thing is framed in a, a kind of fascist light. You know, they have this, Joyce and Buffy, that is, have this interaction where Buffy is saying, all right, Mom, don't worry, I'll take care of it, like, just trust me. And Joyce has invited a bunch of people to the town hall to talk about it. Again, kind of a more democratic 
uh, activism practice, you know, consensus building and trying to build a movement, whereas Buffy is like, no, don't tell anybody. Let me operate like a lone wolf in the shadows without anybody else knowing. And it almost seems to be like an argument of, you know, uh, vigilantes versus police kind of thing, like Mm -hmm. state-supported actions against crime versus a single person that's not regulated by any kind of governing force response to crime. We can't think too deeply about that because, you know, then these weird, creepy, dead little kids are like, kill the bad girls, and we realize, oh, that's what's happening here. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's worth considering that... From a certain light, Buffy's vigilantism does fly in the face of democratic ideals that elsewhere the show seems to want to uphold. Oh yeah, there's there is a there's a weird push and pull throughout the the entire series, both series. Um, if some of this stuff, if you think about it too closely, it kind of starts to fall apart. And one of the aspects, one one of those is the fact that Buffy is supposed to be the lone protector who, for some reason, like I've, I've asked in previous episodes of the podcast, why, why does the Slayer have a secret identity? Like, what's the point? Why, why is that important? I don't understand. Why isn't she just working with the authorities? And of course, then we raise issues of, well, the authority happens to be on the wrong side of the law in this case or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, there's, some of this stuff is fun to explore and some of it you just have to kind of let go if you're going to enjoy the fantasy setting of the series, I guess. But, uh, well, cause the thing is, Paul, um, Buffy has a secret identity, but also she can't keep her identity secret, which we see a glimpse of in this episode where there's these, you know, nondescript jocks who are bullying Michael. Oh yeah. And they won't leave him alone until Buffy shows up. And as soon as they see Buffy, they're like, whoa, hey, no, we know that you could totally beat us up. So we're walking away now. So her her authority there comes from them knowing about her secret identity, even though it's not explicitly right. stated. Yeah. Well, and of course, and we'll, we find out by the end of this season that basically everybody knows who she is and yeah. what she does anyways. But um, just the concept of the, of, you know, and and it was explored when Kendra came in and the fact that Kendra is raised in a very different style of Slayer watcher relationship than Buffy is the whole notion of Slayer has to be alone. A Slayer can't have friends or family. A Slayer can't let the world know who she is or whatever is a weird paradigm mm-hmm. for this to have ever functioned under. But at any rate, um, yeah, this episode has an awful lot. This episode is packed with ideas that it wants to explore and, I remembered, so I, I will never say a bad word about Jane Espenson, um, but I just remembered not caring for this episode particularly. I, I, I love the hell out of it on rewatch, but my memory was that it was overcrowded. It had so many things that it was trying to cover censorship and book burnings and, uh, and witch hunts and overprotective parents. And Moo is this series take on the PMRC, the parents music resource council. And, um, uh, mm all that stuff. And I remembered it feeling very overstuffed and sort of disconnected, but on this, what do you think? Do you think it pulls all of that stuff off or do you feel like it tried to do too much? Oh, I agree that it tries to raise a lot of questions and I, 
I'm with you in feeling underwhelmed by the conclusion of it. Um, it the conclusion happens very, very quickly. Yeah. You know, Giles shows up. He says some words in German. All of a sudden, there's a big monster, but the monster doesn't really inflict any damage. Buffy just looses herself and then <laughs> and it, leans down and impales him. It just casually walks onto the end of this giant yeah. stake. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, maybe that is the point because Giles describes this demon as, oh, hang on, I took notes and I wrote it down, um, that the demon is not destroying them, but is watching them destroy each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, maybe we can think of it as this episode continues to raise some questions that have been raised in earlier episodes. And the fact that there's no satisfying conclusion or response to all of those questions uh, just means that we have more exploration to do in future episodes. I mean, this episode also continues exploring the questions raised in amends about what is the price of taking a life? Do you make amends by saving a life? Do you make amends by saving many lives? Can you ever truly make amends for one bad act or one evil act? Um, you know, the they continue that refrain of... Um, the if nothing we do matters, all that matters is what we do, or it's hard and it's painful and it's every day. Um, you know, Buffy questions herself to Angel. Uh, I battle evil, but I never really win. Mm-hmm. And Angel is like, you never will win, and that's why we fight. So we see a continuing discussion of these questions without a single satisfying answer, which I think is very reflective of reality. You know, like... In today's political climate, I'm sure we're all asking ourselves, what is the most ethical way to live my life right now? How can I do the least harm? How can I help? But it's not like if we do a good job today, then we will wake up tomorrow and Trump will no longer be president. Right. Um, It keeps on going. Um, There is another editing-related moment that I wanted to bring up. Okay. Um. Just, you know, really paying attention to the technical aspects of editing and how they enhance storytelling. I noticed this time that during the part of the episode where Buffy and Giles are trying to confront Joyce and Moo in the Summers residence and they get chloroformed by Joyce and company. Yeah. Um, Right as Buffy is passing out, we have a low angle shot up to the little kids standing on the stairs but they are blurry and kind of appear to be fading in and out of consciousness. And then we get the reverse shot to Buffy as she passes out. And there's just a nice little moment where the editing effect lets us know that we're seeing them through Buffy's eyes and that she is seeing those children and kind of making the connection like, oh, they've been here influencing my mom this whole time. Um, Which, you know, if we didn't get that little moment of recognition of knowledge on Buffy's part, it it would slightly change what the episode means. You know, if Buffy was battling something she thought was purely her mom versus, you know, being able to see for, to confirm for sure. Like, yep, those are the ghosts that are haunting my mom right now. Mm -hmm. 
And I appreciate those those little moments of editing because they really lift up the story. Yeah, it, uh, I was trying to remember because I I don't remember consciously noticing that, uh, but that is Buffy's last opportunity because she from there she gets tied to the stake and set on fire. That's her. <laughs> yeah. That is her last opportunity to sort of figure out what's going on. And short of having uh, Giles burst into the library and just blurt out to Buffy as she's standing up there on the pyre, this is what's going on. Don't blame your mother. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the only way that Buffy has at this point in the story of putting together the fact that her mother hasn't just straight up gone evil. (laughs) So, (laughs) so that scene kind of had to happen in order for Buffy to, to, fight back while she was tied to the stake or whatever. Yeah. Um, I wonder, since you expressed such admiration for the face morphing in amends, uh-huh. if you have any thoughts about the morph that happens when the, uh, the two little ones become one big one. <laughs> it's not, not especially good. <laughs> I mean, it was, yeah. it was, it was about par for the course for, for early seasons. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I guess, which means not the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. It did what it had to do, I guess, but not uh, particularly memorable to me. I was going to... You you already brought up the fact that we lose the two little kids and it becomes this gigantic, like, troll-looking thing. And um, I I wanted to... I thought I was going to have something really clever to say, and it's probably not going to be that clever, about the fact that... um, it does not immediately start swinging its gigantic arms around. Like it doesn't grab Joyce in its <laughs> massive hand and just crush her head or whatever. Like you'd think something that big and powerful could just tear through these people. Uh, and the fact that he basically just sort of casually walks into the stake and lets himself be killed <laughs> without Buffy even trying. Um, but I, I think the cool thing about that is that the monster was dangerous when it was tiny and secret and, only like people were only seeing it in their heads and it wasn't like visible to the entire town or whatever. And once it is pulled out into the light, once it's revealed to be this gigantic, massive monster, it's really weak and pathetic and doesn't stand any chance. (laughs) So I I thought I was going to be super clever in pointing that out, but I'm sure everybody had already picked up on that. So it is super clever. Paul. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely correct. I am thinking of how, uh, well, going back to Trump in the White House, um, surrounded by cronies, he would appear to have all the power in the world. But if he were in a dark alley with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, he would not stand a chance. Oh, God. What a wonderful world that would be. Oh, where's that Christmas miracle? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, um, okay, another thought about um, some of the the historical parallels that this episode tries to raise and uh, one in particular that I think is worth teasing out um, the thought that this monster is what has been responsible for witch hunts and uh, general hysteria and panic throughout history. Giles mentions in an offhand kind of way that this happened in Salem as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a few years since I have done this research I am a little excited to get back into it, actually, thinking about what I'm going to do with myself right after this podcast. But uh, 
you know, do you know anything about the origin of the Salem witch hysteria and this figure from history whose name was Tituba? Say the name again. Tituba. T-I-T-U-B-A. That name does not ring a bell. I'm... I'm passingly familiar with sort of the reality versus the fantasy of the whole Salem witch trial thing. So I I would just say briefly that as far as I'm aware, witches were not actually burned in Salem. (laughs) Like that's (laughs) that's not a thing that actually happened. People, people were hanged um, and not as many, I think as a lot of people expect, but like the Salem witch trials have been completely uh, sensationalized or whatever in pop culture. So um, this woman named Tichuba was a slave. Um, yeah, number one thing in, in this little case in history is that uh, very often Northerners like to think of the North as exempt from the evils of slavery, but uh-huh. it's not the case at all. Um, Tichuba was originally from uh, somewhere in what is known as the West Indies, and she was brought to New England as a slave uh, she worked in the home of a guy who lived in Danvers, which was the original site of what we think of as the Salem Witch Hysteria, um, a guy named Samuel Paris. And the hysteria, according to sources that I have read, and if you have any historians who are listening to this podcast right now and would like to debate the finer points of this, please, that would be awesome. Um, <laughs> but from what I remember from my research, the hysteria really began when children who lived in Samuel Paris's household accused Tichuba of practicing black magic and, um, oh, the word is escaping me. Why is the word escaping me? Um, 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 when you make the little dolls that are supposed to voodoo, voodoo. yes. Okay. Like they were accusing her basically of witchcraft and voodoo and of putting, of Tichuba putting spells on them so that they would go hysterical And the testimony of these two girls, which some accounts say never, what was never founded in reality. Um, Some accounts say that the children really believed that this happened to them. And some say that the children were lying and knew that they were lying. Mm -hmm. But that's really what started it all. Um, These, the testimony of these little white girls against uh, this, you know, this woman from the Caribbean. And when you think about that, taking it on surface level, what that meant, that you could be someone who is trying to make the most out of a wretched life of slavery and the kids of your master accuse you of putting spells on them and everybody believes them, you know, that prioritizing of preservation of white innocence over black lives is something that continues even until today. But the standard narrative of Salem and the witch trials don't really focus on what that has to do with it. You know, um, they don't really focus on the exoticizing and the fear mongering of the practices of slaves who were kidnapped from other cultures and how the demonizing really of religious practices outside of the Christian tradition were seen as evil and witchcraft and good reason for killing somebody. Mm. 
you know, bringing this up to tie it all together to the the discussion we were having earlier about the predominance of Christian iconography, you know, it's not just about noticing, oh, every storefront has a Christmas wreath. You know, it's about recognizing the ways that Buffy participates in these larger cultural institutions and narratives, even when it is trying to subvert and unpack those narratives. You know, this is part of uh, what overall cultural conditioning is. Mm-hmm. And something that if we want to fight it, we got to fight it every single day. And it's hard and it's painful. And it's probably not going to be a battle that we ever win in our lifetimes. Um, but it's still important to take a look at it and think about it. You know, and I mean, I it, it, it's a pattern throughout history, particularly American history, where this is how white supremacy has exerted itself where um, lies are told about what people of color are doing and those lies are believed and taken to be truth. Mm-hmm. Um, this happened over and over again in the Jim Crow South when white women would claim that black men had hurt them or sexually assaulted them. Um, yeah, to Kill a Mockingbird hinges on one of these lies. You know, um, And it's something that continues even today. I think I mentioned it earlier, parking lot Patty or whatever her name is, this uh, rash of incidents from this past summer where white folks have basically made up a threat and called the cops on people of color who were not actually doing anything threatening. Um, Something that has happened over and over again, continues to happen over and over again. You might say that it's a stretch to try to go from gingerbread an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer to trying to dismantle white supremacy in 2018. But, (laughs) you know, you got to take these parallels where you see them. I I think it's I think it's absolutely appropriate. That's what I mean. (laughs) That's what the Whedon studies are about. Not really. But I mean, that's one of the (laughs) things the Whedon studies does that I love is it takes this what a lot of people dismiss is just a silly little vampire TV show with girls in miniskirts or whatever. And it draws all of these very serious real world parallels. And uh, so I love that stuff hey, uh, for your consideration of the three girls that are tied to stakes and set on fire in this predominantly Christian Southern California town. The only one that actually catches fire is the Jew. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Oh, <laughs> So I don't know what that means. I'm just pointing it out. Um, all right. So to start oh, winding dear. this down, start winding this down. A couple of little points I wanted to mention about this. Um, uh, Buffy in at one point in this episode, Buffy just takes it as given that demons just like vampires don't have souls. I, I know a couple of demons that we're going to meet later on. That would be very sad to hear her say that. Oh, yeah. There's something that feels kind of obnoxious and self-righteous about the way she says that line, too. Yeah. Isn't there she, someone with a soul did this? Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, she has done things herself. And people with souls do terrible things all the time. It is also just in the context of the series that we've seen up to this point. It's a little bit willfully naive on her part. She has she's already seen regular people do terrible things so <laughs> it's it's not like again just like in the last episode where uh you were talking about angel 
hitting her and she pretends it's the first time he's ever punched her. This is not the first time you've seen regular humans, people with souls do terrible things, but thank you for your, thank you for your uh, epiphany, Buffy. Um, (laughs) This is the first, last and only time that we ever see Willow's mom. Willow's mom. Yes. Oh, I made a note of that too. I, because the King Friday lording it over the lesser puppets line still <laughs> cracks me up. Yes, um, that's great. And I realized, yeah, we don't ever see Sheila again, do we? Nope, that's it. As far as I know, I'm I'm almost 100% positive that's the only appearance of, of either her par- her parents. We never meet her father, do we? No, I don't think we do. We learn that his name is Ira in an episode towards the end of season two where... Mm. They're protecting from Angelus and they're nailing crosses to the threshold of Willow's room. And Willow says something like, oh, the only daughter of Ira and Sheila Rosenberg putting crosses in her room. Yeah. yeah. No, um, we don't. Let's see. The other thing, uh, two more things I was going to point out. One, Cordelia, uh, who, even though she's on the outs from the Scooby gang, gets to participate in this episode. She she finally points out what we've all been wanting to point out, that one of these days Giles is going to wake up in a coma. She's like, <laughs> how many times have you been hit in the head anyways? Um, and then the last Hilarious. thing is the last thing is that adorable goth kid Michael, uh, yeah. who's practicing witchcraft with Willow and Amy, is played by the actor's name is Blake Swenson, who also goes by uh, it's Blake's. Set, set or Senate is the other name he goes by. Um, in the real world, he is the lead singer and, or lead guitarist, maybe. I can't remember what role of uh, the band Rilo Kylie. What? Yeah. Cool. So. Hey, good for you. Way to go, kid. Um, uh, one other. Well, I guess two other quick little notes um, on the topic of Cordelia. Uh, I noticed this time that. There is a, not even a B plot, it's like a C plot where Oz and Xander are getting over being weird with each other. Yeah. Um, And while Oz and Xander are sort of hemming and hawing and going through the pipes trying to get in to save everybody, really it's Cordelia breaking in the hose, or breaking down the, you know, the glass door and getting the hose out and hosing everybody down is... Yeah kind of what saves the day there. So thinking through what a nice little moment of triumph that is for her, that the, the two men who are weird with each other over a, you know, sexual encounter snafu that caused the group dynamics to break down for a little bit. They're dealing with each other. They're like competing with each other in some way while they're fiddling around with that nonsense. Like Cordelia's helping Giles. She's down to business. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Um, and on that same note, when Oz and Xander first break into City Hall and they look at the people who are under the spell, um, Xander says, so what's with the Grim?" Which I like to think of as a oh, pun. Oh my gosh, I had uh, actually not <laughs> caught that line. Ooh, and now you will never be able to Damn. forget it. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Um, I did like... Uh, when they fell through the ceiling at the end after everything was over and Oz is like, uh, we're here to rescue you. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Right. Uh, at least they tried. They tried. Um, yeah. Okay. So that was 
awesome and amazing. So when I first put this podcast together, my, my hope was, or sort of my vision for it was, I'd have all you incredibly intelligent Weed and Studies Association people, all of you scholars come on and basically just present one of your damn papers. Like I had this vision that as we were discussing certain episodes, if, if you had written a paper about something that happens in that episode, you'd come on the podcast and basically just talk about your paper. It hasn't really worked that way. And that's fine. I get that. That was an unrealistic expectation. It's unfair of me to expect uh, scholars to just freely present their work on a <laughs> rinky dink little podcast. But um, this felt kind of like that. I, I really appreciated the fact that it felt like you were kind of working through, like you could write a paper about these three episodes someday. So um, I appreciate I've, it. I very well may. Cause now I have pages and pages of notes and a bunch of questions that I did not have before. Well, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So at the next slayage, uh, I hope uh, conversations with dead people gets a mention in your footnotes. Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding me? I am going to go shout you out on Twitter as soon as we get off the phone about how much fun I've had. Although, awesome. I do have to say just as a uh, little teaser to drop in there that I am pretty sure my next paper at Slayage is going to be about images and rhetoric of masturbation in oh the Reading Verses. <laughs> My goodness. Um, okay. I don't know if you were at the panel where Michael Starr delivered a paper on In Your Eyes and its parallels with the, the he called it Force Time, the like FaceTime, but with the Force in The Last Jedi. No, um, I, I missed that one. I wanted to see that one. Um, well, in In Your Eyes, there is what is presented as a lovemaking scene, but what actually boils down to a masturbation sequence. And the question came up of, yeah, there's really not a lot that's been written about images of masturbation in the Whedonverse. That's wide open critical territory to which I said, challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. And possibly now I can't decide if I'm, if I applaud your decision to remove your name from the running for future Mr. Pointy Awards, <laughs> or if it would be amazing for you to accept a Mr. Appoint Mr. Pointy Award for that particular paper. Um, let's say that this one is just for fun. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Much right. like masturbation itself, yes. I suppose. Yes. Oh, good right. times. Well, on that note, Mary Ellen, thank you. Bless you. Thank you so much for uh, joining me. And as I have said many times, you will be back. I, you absolutely have to come back. Um, would you like to, unless you want to remain anonymous, which I don't think, but uh, would you like to tell the listeners at home how they could track you down online? No, um, I'm okay with not remaining anonymous. Um, if anybody is interested in what I'm up to or what I have to say about things, you can check out my website, maryelleniatropolis.com. I encourage you to Google it because chances are you're not going to be able to spell it on the first try. And that's okay because nobody is. If I sound a little bitter about that, <laughs> I, I kind of am. <laughs> um, you also can find me on Twitter at Metamare. And um, within the next week or so, hopefully you will be able to find me uh, in your podcast app or on the iTunes store. The name of the new podcast is going to be Supposedly Great and it is going to be great, I hope. 
I full um, I fully expect it to be great. I'm excited for this. Yeah, I it might end up just me ranting about things that I think are great or not great, or maybe it will become a little more comprehensive than that. We're still in the initial stages, but um, yeah, if you hear this and you have a thing you think is great and you want to tell me why it's great, maybe you could be a guest on my podcast someday. So hit me up on Twitter at, did I say Twitter? You did. <laughs> you did, but roll with it. I like it. I like it. Oh, hit me up on Twitter at MetaMare. <laughs> And I will get back to you. Wow, that's funny. Sometimes my New York accent really comes out in unexpected ways. It was beautiful. I loved it. Oh, thank you. Um, this was beautiful, Paul. I'm so glad that you invited me to be a guest. I have had a marvelous time, and I am not at all sorry that we uh, went as in-depth and took as much time as we did, because every single minute, I think, was very well worth it. I I believe that our listeners will agree with you. So awesome. Uh, And speaking of our listeners, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for tuning in. Uh, You probably know, but just indulge me. You can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. Turns out other people have done Buffy podcasts before. I'm not the first. So any kind words that you could uh, spare would really help us stand out from the crowd. Uh, if you've got any questions for me or any of my guests, uh, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at conswithdead, or reach out to us on the Facebook group, wait for it, Conversations with Conversations with Dead People, <laughs> where where my my dream is that these long conversations we have on the podcast will go even longer on Facebook, so... Please jump in there and just drop your thoughts. Um, Next week or whenever I manage to get around to recording it, Mm. I will say I adore you Whedon-y people, but it is so difficult to nail you down sometimes. So I have a guest lined up. I believe that I have gotten official confirmation. So I am going to name her right now. Jennifer Walsh is supposedly going to be joining me. Uh, She's a Buffy scholar from New York. Uh, She has been on the today show uh she as a contributor to watcher jr the undergraduate journal of whedon studies which i don't believe i've ever given a specific shout out on the podcast but that is the the young adult version of the uh mm-hmm. regular uh slayage journal um anyway she's going to be here to discuss episodes 312 helpless and 313 the zeppo which is kind of a big one that a lot of people want to share their mm. thoughts on so tune in for that uh until then ger arg everybody ger arg, ger arg. <laughs> we should be doing the little jingle bell sounds ger arg. yeah the